Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At Lexia, we know literacy changes lives. As the gateway to the future for every student, Literacy can boost their confidence and help them realize their full potential. Based on the science of reading, our literacy programs, along with all of those dedicated educators, can change the path of students' lives forever. We believe literacy can and should be for all. That's why at Lexia, we're all for literacy. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Hey, folks, I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing. Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the team house and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey everyone, welcome to the Team House. This is episode 143. I'm Jack Murphy here with Dave Park right over there. Our guests tonight in studio, we're very happy to have Justin Sapp here with us today. Uh, drove in to Brooklyn. I told them we're deep behind enemy lines out here. Um, I, I, that's a joke, by the way. But Justin, no uh, stranger to any of that, he is the first Special Forces soldier who was inserted into Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks, detailed with a CIA paramilitary team. Uh, the, those events were detailed in Toby Arden's book, First Casualty. We had him here a few months back and interviewed him about the book. Um, but we're really glad to have the man himself here in studio tonight. Thank you for joining us, Justin. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, man. Um, you know, uh, we'll start off where we always start off. You know, I want to ask you a little bit about how you grew up and your your family background and upbringing and sort of the, the path that took you into military service. Sure. Um, so I grew up, my, my dad was a CIA operations officer, a case officer, uh, ever since, I, well, prior to me being born. So I was born into that, I guess, lifestyle, so to speak. Um, and that lifestyle is very much like being a military brat. You know, you're moving around, except you're you're moving around the world, uh, and uh, you're living in embassies and stuff like that. And not always embassies, but but you know, in an international kind of environment. 
And so I started out, I think the first trip, I might have been three or four, somewhere in that realm, we went to uh, Lebanon. My dad had a knack for getting all the, <laughs> the, the good spots. And at the time, Lebanon was like the so-called Paris of the Middle East. And then that changed about six months into our, his tour. And it turned into the Lebanon that everybody knows. The, the Civil War started after the Maronites and the, the uh, clash with the Palestinians. So, uh, so we evacuated from there, lost pretty much everything and then um, went to Greece for a while, back to the States, reset, and then we went to um, India, Bombay or Mumbai. Did two years there. That was pretty pretty straightforward, you know, South Asian tour. Uh, enjoyed it. I was a little kid swimming, you know, kind of subtropical environment. Um, and then um, and I actually went to an Indian school there. I was the only American kid in the school. Can, English curriculum. Can, can I ask you, we've, we've interviewed a, a whole bunch of CIA officers on the show before who talk about their kids and getting to the point where at a certain point you have to tell your kids, this is what I do for a living. I was wondering as a, as a kid, did you have any inkling that like dad disappears late at night with a bag under one arm and then comes back, keeps odd hours. You have any inkling of what your father did? I, I don't think I became really cognizant of that. The, the sort of strangeness of what he did vis-a-vis like compared to other people until I was probably like, uh, I think, 12 or something mm-hmm. and it was the, the people that would uh, come over you know and hang out he would hang out with that that was you know not totally unusual because you're you know we were in Cairo for example but it seemed a bit odd and then I remember my dad had a firearm he had like a pistol he had like a Ruger uh, Speed 6 357 which I thought was really cool and I'd go you know ask him to show it to me and stuff but he never explained why he had it and I I just sort of figured out that your average guy at the embassy is not going to be carrying one of those unless he's RSO or something like that. Um, and then he eventually told me, I think I was like 13, mm-hmm. he pulled me aside and he said, hey, you know, you, you, know, you probably realize that I'm not your average bear here. I, I have a different job and this is kind of my mission. He didn't go into tons of detail, but, and you should, you know, be mindful of that, safeguard it. And, um, you know, I ended up in seventh grade, I ended up moving to uh, Virginia where he was an instructor. And um, and so that was obvious because then he was an instructor and I'm with other kids that are dependents of, of you know, agency people. So, you know, then it started to come into, into the resolution as to, you know, the, the kind of nature of the job and all that kind of stuff. But honestly, I didn't, I didn't have tons of interest in that because I sort of saw it like, Still, I still saw it as kind of related to being a, a diplomat or kind of diplomatic international lifestyle, and that's a different kind of community from the military. And I always was had more affinity, honestly, as a kid, to the Marine detachment because you know we'd be at the embassy and I'd hang out with the Gunny's kid, or my friends tended to be the defense attaché's kid. Not always, but you know frequently. And you know, we moved so much that that I just kind of gravitated towards that profession. I was more interested in that profession. And, um, and I probably by the age of six or seven, I had decided, hey, I'm going to make a career in the military, whatever that means. I didn't quite understand the different jobs in the military. I just knew it was about fighting and the Cold War was, you know, we were still in the midst of the Cold War. So it, it was, it was a calling, you know, like, like, uh, not to be cliche, but I felt like that's what I want to do. There was no question. And so all these kids who were searching, you know, like high school or college, like I'm going to decide it, I don't know what to do with my life. That was never 
for whatever reason, that was never a problem for me. I always knew, okay, I want to be in the military. Now I got to figure out which branch and what I want to do. And it was always either the Army or the Marine Corps and so forth. Uh, yeah. And so how did, did you uh, also go to high school in the States or was that overseas? I did first two years of high school in New Delhi, India, and then I finished up in Marietta, Georgia. It's kind of a, a my dad wanted to get close to his father, who he's estranged from, who lived in Georgia. So that's how we ended up in Georgia. Uh, and I finished up there, and then I went to college at Virginia Military Institute, and um, my uh, my family ended up moving up to the D.C. area like a year later. And then they became Northern Virginia denizens for, well, pretty much the rest of my dad's life. And, uh, and so I was like three hours away at BMI. So that wasn't, uh, that wasn't too bad. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and it was weird. I mean, I, I left uh, from India, and I remember showing up the first day in uh, 11th grade. I came in like a couple weeks late. And uh, right, where do you say you're from? Indiana? Where, where in Indiana do you come from? I said, no, India. I came from India. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I don't know, I was a bit of a, a weirdo, I guess. And, it, you know, that's bad to move kids in the middle of high school. Yeah. I, I totally realize that now. And so I struggled a bit just assimilating. And then, uh, and then you know, but eventually I, I got it together. When you were going to high school in India, because you had, you had mentioned that when you, and I don't know if that's when you said that you went to, like, Mumbai or uh, and you went to an, uh, a, a, you know, an Indian school. Is that also in high school? Uh, was that the oh, same yeah, time? Oh, yeah, good question. No, I'm sorry to confuse. So I went to like first grade in Bombay, and okay. that was in. There was no American school there. There was like German and French schools, but no American school. In New Delhi, there's the American Embassy School. I've been there for years. So okay. we just plugged right into that school, and I did ninth and tenth grade there. So when you when you like actually got to high school in the U.S. Because you had been going, you know, to schools all over the world, basically, right? And was it a bit of a culture shock to you? Or was American yeah. culture like... Yeah, so I'd lived two years in the States, seventh and eighth grade in Virginia. That uh, was helpful. But, you know, in American high school, it, it's different. You go to an international school, it's a mixture of people. There's no American football. Sports are not don't define the social hierarchy as much as they do in the States. Uh -huh. You know, it's just the way it is. And so uh, I had sort of these eclectic friends who were like a French guy who was my friend and a, a guy who ended up being Bosnian Muslim was my friend. These were like my close friends. And then I would, you know, I had American acquaintances. Come back to the States, you know, it's Georgia, so it's all about American football. So I didn't, and it was a good school, don't get me wrong, but I didn't play football, I was a swimmer. So I said, okay, I'm going to do swimming and that'll be my thing. And that was sort of a, that's not the same as, as a, it's a team sport, but it's not, mm -hmm. it's a very individual sport. So I was kind of, that was my clique. And then I did Jay Rotsy, you know, Navy Jay Rotsy, and I had some friends there. But by the time you show up in like the fall of 11th grade, you're already behind. All the cliques have been formed. And so I'm like, I got to get through this and go to college and then I'm going to move on with my life. Mm -hmm. You know, no, no offense against, you know, North Georgia, great, you know, that northern suburbs of Atlanta, um, you know, but time to move on. Yeah. And then what, what was it that caused, had you already decided on the Army by the time you went to VMI? Like, where, where did you make that decision to go Army? And did you make the decision to go Special Forces at the same time? Because you had been exposed to a lot of Marines at the embassies and whatnot. Yeah, so, so I didn't really, I was aware of the term Green Beret. And I think I had seen the movie, The Green Berets, on projector at, at one of the embassy parties. But I didn't know what that meant. I knew there was the army and that they, 
they were like infantry and that they did stuff like that and they had tanks and artillery. And then I knew the Marine Corps was the same and I had family members who were both sides. So my grandfather was a career sergeant major in the army, fought in the tail end of the Battle of Bulge. I had an uncle that was, you know, wounded in the Korean War, Marine. So it was a little bit of both. Um, honestly, the Marine recruiter in uh, Marietta was really good and he almost got me uh, into the reserves because he's like, hey, you come do, boot, you know, basic training boot camp at Paris Island, then you'll go to a reserve unit and, and then you can go to college or whatever you need to do. And I was like, oh, this sounds pretty cool. And um, I got to say, I was influenced by those movies. Like, I know the Marine Corps says Full Metal Jacket is not representative, but it was great propaganda. And it, and it, 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 drew, it drew, I was like, okay, that sounds cool. I think cool. it's very representative, yeah, yeah. actually. I, I don't know. I, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I, I wanted, I love those kind of movies. I love Platoon. I loved all of them. And um, so anyway, I knew I wanted to be infantry, something like that, or combat arms. And uh, one day I went to this uh, college fair, I think it was at Oglethorpe University, and I, there was a brochure on BMI and Citadel and other places like that. And um, I was like, oh, this looks, this looks fine. You know, this looks pretty cool. And then I went to some luncheon or dinner that they hosted, and there was actually it was a former Green Beret, I remember now, chatting with me. And I know what it was. Then one day I was in the library, and I found an old uh, Time Life magazine and it was Roger Donlin on the cover from was it 64, 65, and he had the Medal of Honor. And I was like, ooh, what's this? And I remember going in there and there was those photos of him with the Montagnards and he was smoking the pipes and that whole indigenous unconventional warfare thing. And I said, wow, that looks really cool. But it never, I wasn't that far along. I was just sort of get into the military, what I want to do. And then I thought, well, if I go to VMI, you know, I should apply for an RTC scholarship. Well, I didn't get a four-year because those are very, few and far between, I got, I ended up getting a three year, but so I went to VMI on my own dime the first year and then I got a scholarship and, and went from there. And it was at some point at VMI, I want to say like my 10th, whatever, sophomore year, um, my third class year, that I was down in the like bowels of the library again. And I was studying and there's some pamphlet, it was a brochure or something. And uh, I don't remember exactly what it was. It might have been the SF, some sort of journal. And it had the Green Berets in there. And I remember flipping through it, leafing through it, and then there was the Battle of the Green Beret, uh, you know, written out. And I remember reading it, and uh, I said, wow, i got to learn more about this. And so I eventually did. And then we had, some people may have crossed paths with him. We had an ROTC Sergeant Major. Uh, we had 06 PMS, who was, uh, I think, armored at the time. And then we had a uh, Army Sergeant Major SF guy named Billy Goodson from 10th Group, 1st Battalion, 10th Group. He had been, he was scuba qualified, he had all the, you know, all the stuff. And man, he was a great role model. He could PT, he was like 40, and he could like PT, out PT most of the, the cadets. And so he would do morning PT like three days a week. So we'd go out with him, and, and he was a real role model. I'm like, I wanna, I wanna be like that guy. And so that was probably the galvanizing moment. But then, you know, you find out, okay, so you can't just, excess, you know, go to selection as an officer from, you know, from a base, you know, your, your basic course, right? You have to, you have to go serve three or four years and then be selected later. And so I got, ended up getting armor. I wanted infantry, I got armor. All right. But it was good enough. It was like, you know, combat arms and interesting and kind of like Patton. I like Patton. So I did that. I did Korea as my first tour up near the DMZ. It was about 10 clicks from the DMZ. Moonsan, uh, Camp Pelham. 
that was that was a good tour, and that was about as close as you could get to combat, right? I mean, I, I wanted to be deployed and kind of near the danger zone, and that was about as good as it got in 1995. Yeah. So I was there, did a year, and then I was fortunate enough to come back, and this was luck and timing, and I got an assignment to 373 Armor of the 82nd, which was this one-off battalion that's now disbanded, sadly, that had airdroppable M, M, uh, M551A1 Sheridans. And uh, I was lucky I got that. Because it's right there at Bragg. Yeah, it's right there at Bragg. And so I was there for a couple years. They inactivated the unit. I turned in the company's worth of tanks. I was like a, a, the XO of a Delta company. And then uh, I went over to the CAV for a while because it was the only place to put a uh, 12 Alpha armor guy. And I did, I think, about just under a year there. And then I went to selection. And then the pipeline went from there. So I spent a lot of time at Bragg. Uh, Starting about ninety six to uh, ninety six to ninety eight, and then I graduated uh, the Q course in. Uh, I started selection ninety eight, and then I had to go to you know you have to go to the, the, the captain's career course now. Came back and I graduated uh, December of ninety nine, and then we went to Sear School, and then so I got to group in early two thousand. Wow. So you've probably figured, like, maybe there'd be a Bosnia deployment in your future or something of that nature. It was all about that. It was all the, you know, the JRTC rotations of the time of the late 90s were, uh, you know, Bosnia uh, I-4-esque. You know, you had, um, you know, the, the bad guys were sort of these quasi-insurgents and you were escorting convoys and stuff of that nature. Uh, and uh, the heroes were the Somalia uh, vets. And in the 82nd, it was uh, it was all about Panama. The Panama Raiders, yeah. The Panama guys. Yeah, the and, Panama. and in our yeah. unit, Sergeant Major Troxel ended up being the Joint Staff Sergeant Major. He was our first sergeant at one point. And he had jumped into Panama. So he was, he was like, he was, we loved him, right? And uh, little did I know, you know, that in several years, we would get our own kind of, as he called the baptism by fire. And uh, yeah, so it was all about that. And um, when we got to group, the mission of the time was called Desert Spring. It was a legacy of the containment of Saddam, mm -hmm. uh, if you all mm -hmm. remember. And they were 90-day rotations to Kuwait. So there would be a brigade, armored mech brigade, uh, and then there would be an SF slice. And we were part of that. So we'd do those rotations. And those kind of sucked, I mean, quite frankly. I mean, it was always, like, you know, really hot. And you were cooped up on Doha, which was <laughs> north of Kuwait City. And it was like an old warehouse uh, for shipping, and it was like all asphalt. So like in the middle of the summer, it was just sort of like a, you know, <laughs> the, the, like a radiator. Um, but anyway, we went out and we did some training with the Kuwaitis. Uh, I was on an ASOT team. I was on uh, uh, ODA five five two at the time. We were doing the three. And what's an ASOT team for people? Who oh, sorry, yeah, the acronym. So advanced special operations techniques, or now they just call it advanced special operations. But we were technically called an unconventional, urban unconventional warfare team. So the, the lexicon was a RUC team, which was like your standard SF team. Then you had the specialty teams, Halo, you had dive teams, and then you, you had the ASO teams. And so I got pulled into an ASO team. I got called by a guy, a warrant named Steve Millar, out of the blue, which I was really flattered. He called me in the Q course. He said, hey, somehow he got, you know, my, my digits from from group because they, they knew who was coming. He said, hey, do you want to come to our team 522 and we're an ASO team? I said, oh, wow, that's very cool. Honestly, what I wanted to do is go to dive school and be a dive, a dive team guy. But the fact that 
some guy, some vet from group called me. I was like, I, I can't turn this out. So I ended up going. I did that. My uh, team sergeant was uh, Sergeant Major, uh, uh, well, at the time, you know, was uh, Tony Pettengill. He was uh, Master Sergeant Pettengill, who came out of, uh, kind of came into SF kind of late. I believe it was an E7. He was a uh, drill sergeant and all that kind of stuff. He was really good, a very disciplined, great at, you know, physically fit, all that kind of stuff. So he was a really a good role model. And uh, anyway, and so that progressed. Tony moved on, uh, moved and, and was up at the company for a while before he PCS'd. And then after he PCS'd, I was still on the team. But what happened was I was coming up to the end of my two years. So this is like, yeah, like the, the spring of 01. And uh, I, I, I just done a PDSS uh, pre-deployment site survey to Uzbekistan for a joint training exchange, so-called JSET. We did the JSET in Uzbekistan, which was interesting, and I'll come back to it later. Yeah, why? Yeah. But we were in the Fergana Valley, so we were around Afghanistan. We were in that neck of the woods. We trained with the Spetsnaz unit, Uzbek Spetsnaz unit, which is essentially a, a, a legacy of the Soviet Spetsnaz, mm -hmm. right? So that was interesting. Um, before I left, I had cobbled a deal with the old battalion commander where I, I had told him, hey, I want to go to dive school. He said, okay, fine, we'll send you to dive school. We got a gap on a dive team in uh, Alpha Company, 1st Battalion. Now, Alpha Company was going to become the Cree, the SIF. It was in the midst of this transformation. So the team, I don't think it was a paid team, but it was like, hey, you're going to get another team. So a third year, which is not guaranteed. Which is a big you know? deal yeah. for a yeah. for an SF captain. Yeah, because yeah. the Halo, it's like, hey, Halo team, take a number, because you got to someone's gonna knife you in the back to get that team right. <laughs> right. I mean, so I, but but I really wanted to be a diver, honestly. And uh, he said, okay, it was, it was uh, John Allen, uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Allen at the time, and he's like, hey, uh, Justin, you go, you go to dive school, you make it, I'll put you on on uh, an Alpha Company, and uh, and so, but he changed command. In, over the summer while we were deployed. I come back and pre-scuba is looming. So I had about a month to get myself into shape for pre-scuba. And, and I knew what was involved, so I was like worried. And, uh, and I was a swimmer, but I was still, you know, I was worried. And um, Colonel Haas, Chris Haas, was the uh, battalion commander, new battalion commander. And he, uh, he pulled me and he said, hey, look, I need someone really smart to take over as the S4. I understand you had some deal with Colonel Allen, but Colonel Allen's gone. <laughs> and I got priorities, uh, and you're gonna be S four. And then, and I said, "What are you gonna say? You're in the, you're in the military, Roger that, sir." And then he goes, "But I tell you what, I'm I, I'm gonna let you go to dive school." And I said, "Well, thank you," because <laughs> hey, this conversation occurred, I think, after I I finished pre scuba, but before I went to dive. Oh, school. so you already did the hard. I mean, not so the, I had not already like passed pre scuba, right, right? Right. So that's like the gate to get in. Right. And he was like, "I'll let you go to dive school, <laughs> but when you come back, you know, you're you're on the staff." And I said, okay, fine, sir, that's, that's fair enough. So we went down to dive school, and while I was down to dive school, 9-11 happened. And then everything changed from there. Guys, before we uh, continue on with the story, uh, we do want to give you guys a heads up about some of the sponsors for this show. Uh, we got uh, Orca Coolers, and I got some stuff here to show you. We got some thermoses, and we got this. Okay. Well, you have that there, Justin. Oh, thank you. you. Take that oh, uh, that's a nice su souvenir. We got this huge cooler down here cool, uh, with a big army logo on it. Orca oh. Coolers, orcacoolers.com. You guys go there and use the discount code TEAMHOUSE20. You get 20% off. So orcacoolers.com. They've got a lot of nice mugs. I mean, uh, um, we've got some other thermoses over We gave here Ben too. a really nice thermos last yeah, yeah. week. Yeah, 
Yeah, they've got some really nice stuff. Yeah, so use the code TEAMHOUSE20 to get 20% off. They also have a Navy one. If you're a Navy guy, they have So Navy you're not course. left out. You left out there flapping. Uh, and what's the deal with uh, SAP gear? So SAP gear, I, I, honestly, they're, they're pretty badass. Um, you guys should check them out. They have all kinds of um, apprehension avoidance gear um, that... Uh, they have they have these awesome little things. So, well, this is a little bracelet you wear, obviously. But so I always keep a window breaker in my car, right? In case you know you get trapped in your car. Getting out is not. You can't just bust tempered glass. You can't just bust the car windows. So I normally carry one of those trigger. Uh, have one of those like little trigger uh, guns to to break the glass. Um, but you might not always be able to reach those. So one of the things they sell is this GTFO bracelet. It's like eight bucks. Um, and really, especially if you're driving on icy roads, I like just throw this thing on because what it, what it has, is it has one of those, I don't know if it's carbon fiber or what it, they have the, the video on YouTube, but it's got a little, I assume it's like carbon, whatever it is, but, um, it, it's a little bead that will break tempered glass. So when you have it and then you, uh, kind of like a slingshot, yeah, you pull it back like a slingshot and it'll, it'll break out the glass on your window, hit down in the bottom of the corner and let the whole window fall. Learn that lesson hard. Uh, but check out, check out all their really cool stuff. They've got amazing stuff on their sap gear. Uh, this is the GTFO strap. They've got a lot of amazing stuff, uh, counter surveillance measures, all kinds of cool stuff. That's sap, sapgear.com, sapgear.com. Uh, and the code word is just team for 15% off. It's just team and 15% off. Check them out, guys. You'll love them. At Lexia, we know literacy changes lives. As the gateway to the future for every student, literacy can boost their confidence and help them realize their full potential. Based on the science of reading, our literacy programs along with all of those dedicated educators, can change the path of students' lives forever. We believe literacy can and should be for all. That's why at Lexia, we're all for literacy. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. All right, Justin, back to our regularly scheduled program. While you're down in dive school, 9-11 happens. What, what are you guys thinking and feeling as you're, you're watching that unfold on every single television channel on the country that day? So what's, what's weird is um, we were actually underwater when the event happened. Wow. So Because you do, it, it, at least it used to, a morning dive and like afternoon dive and night dive. So you had like three evolutions the, the day. And we were on Dreggers, the LAR-5. So we were closed circuit. We were like in the fourth week, I think, of the POI. Some three and a half weeks in. It was a five and a half, POI, a five and a half week POI at the time. And uh, I remember we came off the dive. And so they got this little 
uh, area behind the, the schoolhouse where you freshwater rinse your stuff. So we're in there cleaning up and there's these instructors walking around and they're like, hey, you know, and I overheard them talking about a terrorist attack. And, uh, but no one had said anything, no one had pulled aside. And I, I remember I asked one of the instructors, I said, hey, Sergeant, you know, what's the deal with this terrorist attack? He goes, oh, you haven't heard? And I'm like, no, no, we haven't. He goes, well, you'll find out soon enough. And then at some point, one of them came to me and said, my fiance had called the dive school. And I didn't give her the number of the dive school. Why would I do that, right? I'd give her my cell number or whatever. I, had a, I guess we had a, I had a cell phone at the time, uh, which I thought was weird. And uh, anyway, all of a sudden, they're like, everybody get their ass up into the classroom. So we stowed our draggers. We went up to the classroom. And one of the instructors came in, and he popped in a VHS tape, and it was a VHS taping of the second plane. And it kicked on with the explosion, all the fuel, and uh, to me, my first reaction was it kind of, it didn't look real, it kind of, I don't know. Like, like a Hollywood, like a Hollywood movie, explosion, yeah. right? Big Fugas explosion, and then uh, he said, gentlemen, our nation's under attack, or something to that effect. Um, Training will be suspended until further notice, and we're going to guard Key Fleming Key. Mm -hmm. So in Key West, it's like a, you know, the, there's a very long spit at the end of Key West if you look at it from, you know, like looking south to north. The very end of it is basically where the dive school is. And so we had to patrol the area, I think a day or two we did it, and some guys were in Boston Whalers. So it was just sort of surreal. You're in uh, UDT shorts, which are not best shorts in the world, t-shirts with mag lights and Tevas walking around <laughs> looking for scuba bin Laden. And, uh, and and then meanwhile, the guys were motoring in the Boston Whalers. I was jealous. I wanted to be out on the Boston Whalers, but we were just walking around. You know, the sand fleas are getting you and the little fire ants or whatever. And, and then finally, I think on the second day, they said, okay, we're going back to training. But there was no, hey, you're going, your group's going to do this. There was none of that. It was all sort of news blackout. One other thing I remember, this is kind of kind of funny um the next morning it was like september the 12th i was the guy who had to uh run the detail to put the flag up right so it's like 5 30 in the morning still it's like you know uh dawn and we put the flag up and i said hey let's put it up and bring it to half mass you know sure enough we did that and then literally like three minutes later this uh i don't remember his name but he was the navy uh xo he was a navy officer he came up he looked up and he said why is it a half mass or something like that? And I was like, you know, I'm like, he's like, have you received official notification? Put the, the flag at half mast. I said, no, I just kind of assumed that was the right thing to do. And then he said, we'll put it back up until we get, you know, the, the notification. I said, fair enough. So anyway, I just distinctly remember that. And we all kind of had this perplexed look at each other. And, but anyway, we continued and finished the training and they had to compress it because we had lost a day or two. And then uh, we graduate on the 20th of September. And I think the day before I called group in the three, it was uh, Mark Schwartz at the time, um, Major Mark Schwartz at the time. He picked up the phone and I said, hey, I'm down here, coming back home tomorrow, graduating, what's going on? And he said something like, you know, come, it was, come in Saturday morning. So we get back Friday night, come in Saturday morning, see the battalion commander. So we get back, one of my teammates picked me up at Campbell or at the airport in Nashville. I remember his dad was driving. Like, I'd never met his dad. He's like, oh, guys, I wish I was young again. I want, you know, he was a Vietnam vet. He was, you know, everybody was speculating as to what was going to happen, but no one knew anything. So I get back to group or get back to Campbell, and, and I was living in Oak Grove at the time, actually. Um, 
and uh, paying 500 bucks a month <laughs> for my apartment. <laughs> I ended up going in to uh, see Colonel Haas in the morning, Lieutenant Colonel Haas, and he said, hey, bud, <laughs> first thing he said, and that's how he would speak, like, hey, bud, first things first, you're not going to be the S4. <laughs> Goes, and, and just for people who don't know, like, you thought you were going to take a third year on a team, which is a big deal for an officer, a, a captain, right? Yeah, it's like a, a great privilege, honor, whatever. It's a good, you know, you, know, you want to do that. And then he comes in and tells you that you're going to be running logistics. Basically. Yes. Logs. So I don't know whether yeah. I'm getting that job because I'm getting relegated or I'm getting <laughs> right. that job because he, I really am smart. And right, really, right, right. I don't know. I think my company commander, I think the, the companies had to cough someone up and they said, well, SAP will be good at the job with numbers. I don't know. I, I have no idea. So I ended up, uh, <laughs> so I get into his office and he's like, you're not going to be the S4. He goes, I'm going to lose you for a while. And he said, so you need to go up and see the group commander later today. But we will high-five each other on top of a T-55 in Kabul or something like that. It's just kind of, you know, that was his thing. He's like, all right, bud. And he's kind of like that. And he sort of, I think he hugged me or he, he slapped me in the back or something like that. And, um, and anyway, I left. And then uh, I went up to group, I think, later in the morning. And Colonel John Mahon was the group commander. And uh, I was waiting on the outside, and they called us in, and all of a sudden these other guys showed up. So it was me, it was another captain, uh, who I knew from the Q Corps, good guy, uh, and three warrant officers. And we went in, so there's five of us. Mahalan's like, sit down. We sit down, and he said, I have to send, I, said, I have to pick three of you to go to the interagency, the CIA, to conduct an unconventional warfare assessment then exfil out and brief the ODAs, and, and then they will infiltrate. So you're doing the what we would call the pilot team thing, which was the kind of team I was on, but the way they were doing it was different. They didn't have a whole SF, UW team or uh, ASOT team go in. It was, we were going to augment an agency team. Were, were these other five guys also from ASOT uh, teams? I, I think they were... I don't, you know, that's a good question. I know at least one was, and then... Uh, the other captain, he was, uh, I think he had been on an urban UW team, but I don't. I, he hadn't been to ASOT, neither had I at that point. I had been to Broken Axle, but, but I hadn't been to ASOT. And um, I don't know about the other guys, but the, the, the two other warrants were very senior. They were like threes or fours. I, I thought that was very senior at the time. They were older guys. And there was a younger warrant, and there was two captains. So we're like in our late 20s, and maybe they were like in their late 30s. And, and anyway, so I assumed... Well, if I was Chroma Hall, I'd pick the seasoned warrant officers because they got all the experience and you know, they're trusted guys, trusted agents, so to speak. But anyway, he said, okay, um, and he went around the table and he, and he asked uh, some questions, like cursory questions, like, does anybody have any experience with, you know, the interagency? And I said, well, I, you know, I, I, I did, um, I was a, uh, an intern when I was in college. And he kind of, <laughs> I'm not sure that was the right, <laughs> right answer. Right, right, right. He was like, okay. And, yeah. then, uh, and then and then, the, everybody else was like, uh, you know, I did this, whatever. And then he said, okay, come back uh, this afternoon. He goes, go back to your battalions. We'll get back to you. Uh, and so it was very clear, like, he had to make a decision out of the five who the three were going to be. Uh, so we left, and, uh, and then we were called back. I think it was like 1,500 that day. And I just remember... Uh, he was Major Bob McDowell at the time. We called him Angry Bob McDowell. Good guy, but he was very 
like a, he was a strong XO, right? And he was a guard dog, right? So he would guard the colonel uh, assiduously, and we go up there, and he's, what are you doing here? And we're like, <laughs> we're told to come up here, sir. He's like, all right, just sit over there. So anyway, he calls us in, and uh, it was only three of us this time. The other two had, had not been called back. And then he said, you guys are going, you're going, uh, I think, so this was like Saturday evening. He goes, you're going Monday. You're going to D.C. You're going to get briefed up. You're going to liaise, and then we're going to go from there. And I think we actually went to Sox and all the way. So it was like a two-phase two trip. And that was it. So we got our stuff together um, over the weekend. We flew up to uh, down to Tampa. We did some meetings in the J-3. Uh, I remember it was, uh, I think it was Lieutenant Colonel, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Schlump at the time. Uh, really good guy, and he kind of they briefed us up. But you know, it was what we knew about Afghanistan was so very little, right? very little, right? right? So it was sort of like okay. And then we went up to headquarters, and um, that's when things got interesting because you know it was they were also in a state of flux too. Mm -hmm. Everybody was at, at Langley. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody was trying to figure out what we're going to do, and we're outsiders, so we have to sort of be assimilated and minded and you know we're, we're not we're not from that organization so we were there for a couple of days uh we got you know treated really well and um you know but what are you going to do you're not you know you don't have a desk job there right you're 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 a green beret that's hanging out with the lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Starbucks coffee cup that's now a spit cup, right? So, <laughs> right. so you had to, you know... <laughs> I don't, you know, I think we eventually decided that we just keep the Copenhagen in the car. So went back uh, to group a um, couple days later and uh, went to brief Colonel Mulholland and he, we explained to him what we knew. Uh, it was very much like, hey, we're going to come back to D.C. and then we're going to be put in an OML, an order of march for teams going in. And that was it. But in the interim, we were to wait to be called on. Mm -hmm. And so there, the order of March, so to speak, had not been decided yet. And so we were just on call. And I remember the guys in the three shop, there was this uh, guy who worked at the three, sh three shop who was detailed or tasked to help us. He was phenomenal because uh, we'll say who, but one of the three of us uh, got to Nashville Airport the next trip and had forgot our passport. He went all the way back to Campbell and got it before the flight left. It was amazing. You know, I don't know how fast he went, but he could play 100 miles an hour. But anyway, we um, uh, we were called back within two days. So it was like, hey, wait a week or two. And then a week or two became two days. So what I did was I packed everything I had that was not discernible as military gear. Mm -hmm. And then everything else would be procured later. And it was weird because I saw all my kit, you know, LC and uh, all that kind of stuff that I wanted to take. And they said, don't bring that. So I left my my issue, mm -hmm. and that was a little weird. And in retrospect, I wish I brought it, but but at the time it made sense. Mm -hmm. So we get to we get to uh, headquarters, we get to DC, and uh, they said, okay, you need to be outfitted. 
So we ended up going out to uh, REI one night, and I think I spent like, I don't know, thousands of dollars buying everything imaginable, and I ended up packing it into one, I don't know, like a Osprey kind of three-day pack or something, or hiking pack, which is, you know, you know relatively small. And then I had a, a more of an expedition pack, you know, that was uh, uh, that was filled out with different kit. And I, we bought some silly stuff. I remember I bought glacier glasses because I assumed we were going to be in the midst of snow and, you know, high altitude yeah. and all that kind of it's stuff. It's all a mystery at this yeah, point. Yeah, it was totally yeah. incognito. So you're, yeah. you're outfitted like you're going to go scale Everest. That's what, that in our mind's eye, that, that was, you know, that was what it was going to be like. And, and so we bought some weird stuff. But anyway, we packed it all. But at the end of the day, it all fit into two bags. And um, we got there, and, and it was so, uh, it was sudden, such a state of flux that, that from one hour to the next, you didn't really know what you were going to be told. And we were not in the decision cycle. Mm -hmm. We were the help, right, that they brought in to be... Um, liaisons and sort of military advisors, for lack of a better word. Um, I remember we got a brief at one point, you know, about bin Laden and all that kind of stuff. And at the time, we didn't know where he was and, and uh, they had an idea, but uh, they were trying to keep us busy and they sort of kept, gave us some briefs and stuff like that. And then uh, one day, the next day, I think we were there about the third day, that second time. So this is on around the end of September probably around uh, early October, they said, hey, you're leaving tomorrow. And, uh, and that was it. And so we had to rush out and get some last minute things. And then we, um, we boarded uh, a vehicle and took off from there. And next thing you know, we were in, um, uh, in Germany. And then from Germany, we went to uh, uh, Uzbekistan. So had you been assigned to a, a paramilitary team at this point? Uh, Yes, but I didn't quite, it's just interesting, I didn't quite understand, like, how they were structured, right? Mm -hmm. All I knew is that, okay, there's teams. They had one, Gary Schroen's team was already in the Panjshir Valley mm -hmm. at the very end of uh, September. Sometime, I forget the exact date, maybe 26, somewhere in there, 22nd September, last weeks of September. They were already there. So they are like, hey, we got guys in the north. But that had been an area that they had iteratively gone to meet with Masood before he, he was killed. So that was somewhat of an established relationship. Dostum was like this shadowy figure that they did, you know, was out there and, and Ishmael Khan and all these guys. And I remember seeing him on a, on a map, like here are the Northern Alliance guys and this is the sit temp enemy, you know, Northern Alliance. Very general, broad conceptual. So we get to, um, uh, we, I, so I remember getting the vehicle uh, the day, the evening that we were going to fly out. And that's when I met Mike Spann. Um, some of the other guys I had seen around, but there wasn't a lot of time to fraternize, right? So uh, I sort of met him, and I remember I sat next to Mike riding in this van, and that's when I first spoke to him. And he's kind of a quiet guy. Mm -hmm. And so I had to sort of, you know, work out a little bit, and then we got to know him. He's like, oh, you're, you know, well, he knew I was from fifth group, I didn't know anything about him, and he told me, hey, I was a Marine, you know, I was an Anglico guy, and we started chatting, and then we get, and so we, we flew together, and I got to know him, and so we kind of bonded, I mean, everybody did, but I, for whatever reason, Mike and I talked a lot, mm -hmm. and he was roughly my age, I want to say he was like three, maybe four years older than me, so he was like a 92 guy, he graduated college, I graduated in 94, so he was two or three years older than me. Um, so we get to Uzbekistan, 
and then things got, you know, I mean, it was all, we're putting it together. I met J.R. Seeger, who um, ended up being our team leader, and he was already there. And uh, so he had the plan as best we knew. But at the time, I didn't know that we were going to meet with Dostum, that we were, our mission was to link up with Dostum until maybe around the second or third day we were there. And maybe it was just, I didn't ask, but I had, I was really the gun guy. So we had these AKMSs uh, uh, that uh, were, you know, meant new, uh, they were good guns. And we had some pistols and radios and stuff. And so we set about getting that organized. The Camo stuff was more work because there's, you know, that was the first time I'd seen satellite capable embedder. Mm -hmm. uh, that the embedder was still kind of new at the time, so I was like, oh, what's that, you know? And um, and then we had to put the evasion plan of action together. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that's when I worked with Mike quite a bit, uh, and I got to know him even better. Uh, we were we were sitting in this uh, this warehouse, and um, we didn't have enough maps. We had some jog maps. We had some 100, one over 100, uh, one over 100,000 DMA maps, but they were incomplete. Mm -hmm. So I'm putting them together and I'm like, hey, Mike, this is incomplete. So this is not really good because what we want to do is outfit every individual with at least a jog map of the appropriate area. Mm -hmm. Right, right. But, you know, invariably it's like going to be on a scene, right? So you're going to need two maps or tape them together or something like that. Um, <laughs> so Dave Tyson, who's in the book, of course, he was there. And I told him, oh, man, we don't have maps. So he goes, I got some Russian maps. They're probably pretty good. They're, they're in the back, you know, in my, my office. So he brought this scroll of these old Soviet maps. And I remember they were like red inky map, red brownish. They were really good. The, the relief, all the contour intervals, all that kind of stuff was, was good. The problem with those maps were they use a different mill system. So I forget what it was, but the, the 160th guys and I talked about this. It's like... If you call in coordinates off that map, you'll be five miles off, is what they told me. It's them. not so, UTM, yeah, the grid's it, on you, it. Absolutely, it's not yeah. UTM. So, but for train association purposes, it was okay. Right. And so we pieced that together and had a more complete map set. So <clears throat> when you went in and when you were doing, like, the radios, were you guys on agency fills or military fills? Like, who were you reaching back to? Yeah, well, we had our own internal, like, interagency sort of, uh, hierarchy, right? So I was told, hey, you are um, under our authority. You are not under Colonel John Mahon's authority. And then by law, that, that was correct, right? That's, right? that's the way it works, Title 50 versus Title 10. And so so I'm very much part of the team. And, and be honest, you know, honestly, I was the low-ranking guy on the team. So I was just there to, to really do the needful and help out where they, need, where they needed help. And it became very clear that Mahon's Colonel Mahon originally expected like this this comprehensive unconventional warfare assessment like you were taught to do mm -hmm. in training. Like a um an, an area assessment sort of thing. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And in fact that's what I had. I had the template for an area assessment that I I, I don't know, I got from somewhere. I had it on a I can't remember, I had it. I had it printed out. Um but that it became evident that the timeline, the two week timeline and the next fill that was not going to happen and that things were much more compressed and accelerated and expedited. And so my task then became more to survey, rapidly survey LZs, HLZs and drop zones mm -hmm. to uh, get the guys in and get, get the, the both humanitarian assistance and basically what became our, our resupply in. Um, and so that's, that was, that was my task. So you yeah. had reached back to the military with 
with well, like your initially, radios? Well, no. initially, no. Okay. No, it was all, you know, all interagency. That they, they, it was their hierarchy, their chain of command. I was, you know, a minion in that, you know, I was basically an outsider attached to that. Meanwhile, Fifth Group is down in Uzbekistan, uh, and they are, you know, setting up shop there. Right. And so, de facto, we ended up co-locating, and we ended up working together. So a lot of that, that distinction was was mollified because we were there and everybody was part of one team and it worked really well. But yeah, if it came down to it, if if someone said, hey, Sap, you need to do this for, you know, I don't know, Max Bowers or Mitchell or Major Mitchell or someone like that, I could say, well, no, actually, I don't work for you. But they never, that right. never came about. That right. was, you know, theoretical. Did, did you notice a difference at this point in time? Because now you're, you're you know, in this, you know, agency team and you're also co-located with, with, you know, fifth group, which is still, even though they're the special operations are still part of the army, and the army is not a fast-moving organization. Did you notice a difference between the flexibility and mobility of the two different outfits? Yes. So I think it's true, and a lot of people uh, on the agency side of the house will tell you, "Hey, we're much, we're much more nimble." I, I I agree with that wholeheartedly. But you know, part of that is you're smaller, you're more flexible, you have a a Let's just say the way they develop people is very much like more individually focused. So that makes sense, and, and they can move on a dime, but it's like um, a lightweight fighter versus a heavyweight. So you have a lot of right. movement, and you can do this and that, but if you you know if you want to pound somebody, that's that's who you call in the heavyweight. So group pretty, you know, relative to the, the conventional force, pretty, pretty nimble, um, and maybe not as nimble as some units, but it's pretty nimble. Uh -huh. So, um, yeah, it, it was definitely, I saw that, but the reality was at the end of the day, when we went up, ended up going in, we went on 160th aircraft. So that's when I realized that all that's great, but there are certain capabilities that only the military has. Right. And it's amazing capability that came out of the ashes of Desert One, mm -hmm. yeah. and we're the only country in the world that could do that stuff. Yeah. And that, that was really amazing, because at first... Just quickly anecdote, when I first got there to D.C., they were speculating on infill uh, rat line mechanisms. One was, hey, we'll take you out to the carrier, and then you'll be brought in by Hilo into southern Afghanistan, and then you'll wear burqas. That was at one point that was kind of spitballed. At one point, we were going to go in a truck that was modified to hide, with hide, to hiding a hidden compartment, then we were going to go on other aircraft, and then finally uh, General Franks, you know, the long story short, coughed up uh, the aircraft to do it, and they were 160th aircraft. Mm -hmm. so they're direct action penetrators, uh, MH-60. So. Could, could you tell us a little bit about the, the team you were assigned to? Um, you know, how many guys were there? How, what were these guys like? I mean, who were they? And you're, you're experiencing sort of all of this for the first time as, a, as an Army dude, as a green suitor, hanging out in a black world, I guess you could say. And um, and that sort of run up to to insertion. So they were all the first thing. They were all prior service guys. They're all military guys. I mean, every last one of them. So you know, Jr. had been uh, uh, an infantry officer. Uh, uh, you know, Dave had been in the military. Alex had this storied career as a sergeant major. Uh, you know, Andy. Uh, all they were all like they were all prior service. So that 
you know, that was a prereq, right? So we had all those guys, and then Jer was kind of an outsider they brought in from another area, but they brought him in because he was known to be a, a guy who worked well with the military. And he had, in fact, been a guy, I think he had briefed Schwarzhoff in, uh, in, in Desert Storm. So he was well-known, and I think Hank Crumpton picked him, handpicked him to do that job because he was like a GS-15 at the time. So, yeah, it was amazing that as quickly as they put the team together and as quickly as they shuffled the order of march because we were not originally going to be the first one of the first teams in. Of course, Gary Schroen's team was in, but uh, it was sort of up in the air, and then we were moved from the back of the formation, so to speak, to the front. And to this day, I think Alex knows the reason. I don't know why, but that's when things change, and all of a sudden, the next day, we're it's like, hey, tomorrow we're going to the we're going to the airport, and so um, so yeah. But but uh, they were all good guys, uh, really good, uh, sharp guys, and I it, it took a while to get to know them, but I realized it right off the bat that uh, you know that this was uh, however the team was put together, they'd done something right. Mm. Um, and they always said, you know, Jared would say, well, it's good to be the first, one of the first teams in because, you know, there's certain advantages to that and it's, everything's new and nothing's established, right? Mm -hmm. You have ability to shape things. Like yeah. That. Indeed. And, and so uh, that was cool. Um, yeah, so, and Scott had been in uh, uh, Mogadishu and I learned later that he had gone to VMI like me, but he was like four or five years older than me. So I, I, he had graduated before I got there. So that was a little bit of, there was some affinity there. Um, but anyway, yeah, so they were good. Um, they trusted me to do my piece, and they had their piece to do. And Jer knew more about Afghanistan than anybody had met. And then Dave, of course, knew tons about Afghanistan, particularly northern Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And he had the language skills that were phenomenal. Uh, so that was indispensable. So we had those two guys. We had Alex, who was a sergeant major, who was like, you know, looking after the team, and then you had these younger guys who were all, you know, champing at the bit to do something. They had me, who was the, the gun guy and the HLZ Pathfinder, really a Pathfinder kind of guy. And that was it. And uh, we were there with uh, Fifth Group, which had a very kind of expeditionary presence of the GP mediums and so-called piss holes and all that kind of stuff had just been established, a little rough. And uh, we, uh, we isolated for, I think, three days. So there was a delay. And then on the, uh, you know, I think it was, you know, it's in the book, of course, the, the night of the, uh, I think of the 15th over 16th, the period of darkness, was when we went in in October. So, uh, and, and we went on, on 160th birds. And there's a whole story in the book yep. about how the daps were picked and the 47s didn't go. At the time, I didn't really think about it. But um, later on, I met the guys, and I, I realized, yeah, that is somewhat, you know, weird, uh, yeah. weird right? It was good. It was uneventful, uh, uneventful flight uh, down to the Uzbek border. Uh, we left right after dusk. I think it was like 9 o'clock we went wheels up. And I remember talking to Colonel Mulholland, and he was standing on the tarmac. And this is, you know, you know, like right, you know, right at dusk. And, you know, I'd been pounding water because I get hydrated. Once we get shot down, I want to be ready. You know, all this kind of stuff that you're going through your mind, all the various contingencies that can occur. And then all of a sudden, I had to go to the bathroom like horribly. <laughs> I ran over there, went to the bathroom, came back, and he's just staring at me. And, you know, he's a pretty tall. And he's just staring at me, and it was really it made me a little uncomfortable. And then I kind of took a step closer to him, and he goes, Don't get killed. 
like, don't get killed, just like that. And he's got these big hands, he's like, don't get killed. And I said, I'll try not to let you down. And, um, and then he left, and then we got on the aircraft. We had rehearsed, you know, on, on, on one load, offload, all that kind of stuff. And they were, you know, right after dark, we were up. And I want to say it was two and a half hours, maybe-ish, three hours, I can't remember. But I found out later that was the first uh, combat aerial refueling in, of, uh, of, in a, of an M6, MH60 in theater, or ever, uh, combat. Oh, wow. Because I guess it qualified as combat yeah, at yeah. that point, right? So, and I, I, I was sitting in the back, and I had PBS-7s. I mean, we went in pretty light. I mean, we had AKMSs, uh, Glocks, uh, two backpacks, you know, med bag and med kit, you know, the thigh thing with the morphine and all that kind of the Oshermans and and, I, and that was it, you know, and um, not a lot of food because we were going to be relying on the Afghans, which actually worked out fine. And I'm looking through the, the PBS-7s and I see this 47 chasing us in the back, which I didn't know was there. I'm like, I just kind of wondered, why is he following us? Because the 160th, they didn't explain anything. They were like, hey, we got the, the infill. You guys just sit back and ride. And uh, Jer had the headset on. I didn't. So I don't know what was being said. So we're just sitting there, and I'm enjoying the ride. And it was smooth. And um, all of a sudden, I look out in the distance, and the lights of what was Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan just end, and then it's just black mm -hmm. beyond that. South of that, it was just dark. And I'm like, I remember thinking, that has to be Afghanistan. And then there was a little shimmer off the Amudaria River because there was a little bit of loom. And I said, that must be the river. And then, you know, like a minute later, the crew chief was like, pass back, hey, we're in Afghanistan. And we looked down, and that part of Afghanistan, uh, north of Mazar, near the Uzbek border, they have a lot of sand dunes. And so I remember seeing that. And then we hit the mountains, went in another maybe 30, 45 minutes, and then uh, we infilled. And uh, it was unique in the sense that normally, as we all know, you know, you kind of flare in like that and you land, right? It's more efficient. But all of a sudden, it's like we stopped. And then we just elevated straight down. And I'd never done that from that kind of altitude. And I remember looking to either side of the aircraft, and it was sheer like rock face. So it was a gorge. And wow. I don't know what the clearance was, the rotor disc space between the rock and the rotor disc space, but it wasn't much. And we went straight down, and we landed. And then we got out, and we all had our little duties, and um, set up a perimeter. And then we talked to the crew chief, and thumbs up. And uh, there was two birds in the offset like that. And then they left. They were like, bye. We unloaded our stuff. And that was it. And they were gone. And then as soon as, you know, that, it, you know, as soon as you go in on air assault, there's, you know, the, the, the tumult, tumult of the, the engines and all that. And the prop rotor wash. And then they're gone. And it's silent. It's, yeah, yeah, dead yeah. silent. It's just silent. Yeah. And then you're yeah. sort of like, okay, this is when I'm supposed to do sills. And then I remember looking through my nods and there's these, Afghans, there's like a wall of them, and there's some horses, and they're sort of neighing and all that kind of stuff. And there's this one big guy, because Dosen's a little bigger than everybody else. He's at least six foot, I think. And uh, he comes out, and then he goes towards JR, and JR meets up with them, and they shake hands, and they start chatting a little bit in, I guess, Dari. And, um, and from there, we picked up everything, and we were ushered quickly into a meeting, and that was a big meeting. And then um, I remember JR and Dave and I and everybody was sort of arguing over whether we should take our weapons in. Because, you know, it's a little bit awkward, but hey, we're in Afghanistan, we don't know these guys. Right. Oh, by the way, Dostum's reputation wasn't the best, so, right. you right. know, it's like, I don't know, man. And so basically, we decided to take our weapons in. 
And I remember sitting down and you're doing the Indian, you know, the, the sort of cross-legged thing. And, uh, and they were chatting and it was all done in Dari. And uh, so JR was really good about explaining and gisting what was going on. But I remember I was sitting next to Mike and we were told to take notes. And so I was trying to take notes and I'd have to listen to what JR was relaying to us. And then, and that went on for about an hour. Uh, and then it was like, okay, let's get you settled in. There was a little claw down the, you know, a little ways down and uh, we'll get a couple hours of sleep and we'll get up in the morning and get, get busy. And it was like, you're going to go do the HLZ. You're going to identify an HLZ, survey it, send it up, got it. So next morning we woke up and um, they, uh, they brought a vehicle. It's a, I think that there's a picture in the book. Maybe there isn't, but... It was a, you know, jingly truck, whatever you want to call jing, it. Yeah, they packed truck. with RPG rounds. They were in these, like, burlap sacks or some sort of sack that you put grain in or something like that. Maybe it isn't in there. Is this it? Uh, it's that, it's that, probably that truck, but it's a different photo. But that, probably one of those trucks, something like that. And, um, and that was the truck we rode to what, towards the front line. Which is the crow flies probably wasn't more than... 10, 15 clicks, maybe, maybe, maybe 10, 15 miles. No more than that. But on the roads there, the road was riverbed. Riverbed was a road that took forever. But I distinctly remember Dave, um, his Uzbek, because the guy was Uzbek, if I remember, was so good, he was just rapping with the guy, talking to him. And then he would joke, and the guys, they were laughing, and they're telling jokes and all that. And I'm trundled along there with my AK. And then we get to this, this uh, Dehi was the town. We got out. We met with, you know, the, the local sub-commander who was one of Dostum's lieutenants. We had a discussion about Force Array and how many troops he had and all this kind of stuff. And then I went out with Dave and, you know, I surveyed HLZ based on the, the, it was the SWIC uh, GTA that they gave you, that fold-out, that tri-fold thing. And I just used that, and then we sent it up. Uh, later on the in the day, and that was the HLZ survey. And then they came back and said, just mark the hazards with the higher strobe. And we got the rest. And then we went up, the, I think the next day was when we first got on horses. So they had a couple of vehicles, but not many, to move, you know, precious cargo, for lack of a better word, you know, RPGs and rounds and whatever. Uh, but everybody else was either footbound or, they had like a couple of Hiluxes, but mainly it was horses. And so they showed up and they said, we're going to the front line and uh, you're going to meet Dostum and again and we're going to talk through some stuff. So we went up to the front line. It seemed like about a three-hour horse movement. Um, I was excited, you know. It was cool riding a horse. I wasn't a great equestrian person. I had been on horses before, but not much. And JR knew a lot about horses. So we went up there and dumb thing I did, I wore my uh, three-day assault pack uh, with my AK. So riding on a horse, the one thing I remember, wearing a backpack's suboptimal because you're just going to stress a lot of muscles you don't normally stress. And then the AK thing, any rifle, the magazine beats against you when you move. And so there's a way we configured it so it would rest under our thigh. And it was somewhat, you know, accessible, but it didn't beat your leg because if you had allowed it to beat your leg, your leg would be bruised and raw. So, so we got up to the, this, this kind of a, a giant, I guess it was a mountain, uh, maybe, maybe like 6,000 feet, somewhere in that altitude. It wasn't too high. 
but there was this giant gorge, uh, the, the Dari Sioux Valley, that separated. It's like something out of a cowboy movie, like a cliff or Indiana Jones where they go off the end of the cliff. It was that kind of precipice. And on the other side were the Taliban. And you could see them. They were little, you know, ant-sized figures, but you could see them through binos. And I remember Dostum had Lazy W, Soviet-style defensive positions dug in, like a trench line with latrines and everything coming off. And then he had a command bunker with a stove and everything. And we went in there and we met with him. And Jer and, and Dostum spoke at length about the strategy and what they were going to do. And, and he had this map that someone had drawn by hand. It was like a special, like they'd taken a map and then they had made their own special that was like the size of a maybe this... Uh, beige uh, padding there and that was the special for the area and then we you know after that we went back and then the ODA came in I think the next night so it was an inter interval of like we we're on the ground about three days I think and then ODA 595 came in they came in on 47s and that was around one or two in the morning somewhere in there and it was straight up you know Airbus all or strobe whatever I had I think I had a strobe and they came in, they landed, and um, got off. And <laughs> I, uh, there was Andy Marshall, I, I kind of knew from group, was on the team. And he's funny. He's just a funny guy. And he came off, and I, I said something like, welcome to Afghanistan. You know, it's kind of a, a little bit like the Stone Age here, right? You know, it's just not, you know, you're, it's going to be a little rough. And he had been in Somalia, and he said, oh, no, don't worry. I've, I've, I've seen worse before. You know, I was in... I was in Somalia for, you know, 90, whatever it was, five or three or what, I think it was three. So uh, I was like, okay. So, you know, anyway, so we set them into the claw, which became known as the Alamo. I didn't call it that, but someone named it that. And it was just a, a couple of standard Afghan claw with a, I guess you call it a artesian well in the center that, that kind of, it was a cistern type of thing where we procured water from. That was the other thing, the, the water situation that was that was a huge blim factor. So we showed up. I had the reverse osmosis right, REI right. pump that was yeah. not not like nowadays, but like this big. <clears throat> and I'm like furiously like pumping the thing in the morning, and then finally Mark, the medic, was like, "Okay, that's this not going to work." He goes, "What we're going to do is the you volume. Yeah, 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 thank you. The volume of water we need, we're just going to bleach it." And so we did. And then everybody, the broom smelled like an indoor pool because everybody's off gassing corn. <laughs> but the water was pure, or right. like purified. And, um, but yeah, so that's where we stayed. We put the ODA in there. And um, the next, that was late at night. The next morning, Dostum showed up. He said he'd be there at 8. He showed up at like 7.15 or 7.30. I think he did that on purpose to, to offset, you know, to sort of keep, let us know he was the boss, right? Right. And the ODA wasn't ready, and so they were scrambling to put their stuff together. I mean, their LCEs, I don't know, weighed 60, 70 pounds, PDMs, you know, M67 grenades, you name it, they had it. Pursuit deterrent munitions and ammo and water. And so we were scrambling to help them, and then the Afghans had brought mules that we had requested, or donkeys, actually, and horses, and then they took the heavy stuff, the rucks, you know, the medics rucks, stuff like that, and they put it you know, on either side, and they did that, lashed them down, however they did that, I remember watching them do it. And then everybody pretty much rode with their LCE on a horse that had been provided by the Afghans. But Dostum was so frustrated initially that day, I just remember that morning, that Dave was a little bit excited too. He's like, hey, Dostum's getting pissed, man. We need to, 
we need to move out. And uh, I said, okay, you go talk to the team, man. I said, Dave, they, they can only move so fast, right? Mm -hmm. Look at the rucks, they're like 100 pounds, you know? He goes, okay, man, but he's getting pissed. And so sure enough, Dostum barked out something in, in Uzbek and then he just rode off with his little entourage, right? And uh, they left and, and, and he's like, I told you, man, he's pissed. I said, well, he's not going anywhere <laughs> until we bring in the close air support so right. he can just be pissed, right? That good, you know, sorry, Dostum. So, so we eventually got up to the front line and everything worked out. Um, but I think there were some hiccups early on that I'm sure Mark Nuge could talk about, but they, uh, they were trying to call in, uh, if I recall, they were trying to talk the guys on the target. So they got air pretty quick. I mean, th the thing I remember about that era from like 9-11 through probably December, it was like riding a tsunami of anger. Mm -hmm. And you were like this uh, big wave surf guy on the edge of it. And all you, you didn't want to wipe out because you just knew that there was a thousand other people that would take your job in a second. And I know that carriers, the plane started going back still with bombs on. That was the wrong answer. Mm -hmm. And so there was a lot, a little bit of tension early on about that, but that was, we were just, the team was just getting, getting their groove on, they're getting warmed up. And they eventually, they augmented them with an STS guy. And, uh, and then things, things really started going well. Um, but the, uh, the, the first time I, I remember, cause we were sitting up there and Dostum had this carpet, like a little Afghan carpet and on top of it, he had his radio operator, I called him, I forget his name. And he had stuff like something you'd buy at Radio Shack, like a scanner and all that kind of stuff and powered by car batteries. And they were scanning the freaks, Dave talked. Dave was listening and he could understand and he would, you know, the, the Talbs would talk in the clear and they'd, and they'd pick up their freak. And then Dostin was sitting there listening. And he's like picking his teeth, listening. He's like, give me the handset. And he was like, hey. And then you start cursing them out. And they're like, who the hell is this? And then they go back and forth in this sort of sophomoric banter back and forth. And yeah, then, it's funny. They yeah, talk it, shit to each other on the radio. They talk shit to each other. But then they were respectful to each other. Like he said, get your commander on or something like that. I remember Dave saying. And he was actually at one point speaking to the Talib commander. And they were very polite, like, hey, sir, how are you? You know, this unfortunate situation. And, you know. And, but Dostum was a little more aggressive because he had the upper hand and he was talking shit. But the other guy was very, like, deferential, you know. It's kind of weird, kind of Afghan way of right, war, you know. Right, right. Um, but anyway, that went on for a while. But I was quickly um, task organized with Mike and Mark, the, the medic, to go to Bamiyan. And then another team under Scott, an element, went over to link up with uh, Mohammed Atta to bring in another uh, interagency team and, and, um, and an SF team, which became 534. So things were quickly evolving. And so Jer, Jer was like, okay, we're going to break up into three teams. Alex and I will stay here with Dostum, the, you know, the principal. And then Scott, you're going here. And, you know, um, uh, Mike Spann, you're going to be in charge of this team. And you're going to bomb in a link with Mr. Kareem Khalili, who was, you know, the leader of the Hazar uh, people. And I didn't know much about Hazara and people, and I didn't know, certainly didn't know anything about Kareem Khalili. So we linked up, and then his, um, uh, Mr. Sultani was his sort of emissary slash driver slash interlocutor, who I didn't know all the time. Uh, years later, I helped get him back to the States, but that's another story. But he, 
it helped, he moved us from the Dariusu Valley all the way to Yakalang Valley, which is west of Bamiyan. So the Tobs had Bamiyan at the time. Mm -hmm. So we crossed from the Dariusu Valley all the way up into this, more or less this, the geographic center of Afghanistan. And then we passed by Bandi Amir, that, that famous lake that people back in the 70s hippies would go to and, and stuff like that. And then we ended up linking up with Mr. Kareem Khalili in, uh, uh, in Yakalang. And then that was Mike's kind of first trip alone away from the main team. So it was a big deal to him, right? And so I was there to support him. Mark was there for medical coverage. And we were there alone for a while. And that was weird because I remember, I probably never do this again in Afghanistan, but we were doing like eight hour shifts, right? Eight, three times eight, 24. Um, and, but then we said, ah, we got a little lazy, quite frankly. So, well, we just, you know, shut down from whatever hour to whatever hour and sleep. Everybody slept. I look back on that and I said, nah, that was, that was you're trained not to do that and you did it. And fortunately nothing happened. We ended up, uh, bringing in a OGA team and then we brought in an ODA, uh, and, um, and then our mission there was over mm -hmm. and, uh, we had some comms issues and we, that we fixed, but man, like for Mike, that was huge because if we couldn't make comms, we were dead in the water, you know, for him at least. And so we fixed that fortunately. How, how were, how was it like interfacing with the, uh, the Hazar because I, one of the main issues in Afghanistan is all the different ethnicities. And I know that traditionally like the Hazar have been, they've been really kicked around by in, in oh, Afghanistan yeah. itself. Right. So yeah. did they, did they look at it as a freeing Afghanistan or were they just trying to protect their own, uh, area? You know, I'll say the, my first impression of the Hazara were they're very, um, quiet, like as a, you know, as a subculture or a culture, very quiet people. Uh, someone referred to them as like laid back, like the Southern Californians of Afghanistan, but they were very, um, I don't know, meek is the right word, but they were very kind of chill people. And so it was hard to get to know them. They were kind of quiet and they weren't, um, the postures you can tell they're just a more aggressive right. culture because they're the dominant culture, right? Um, for them, it was like, hey, we've been downtrodden and beaten for hundreds of years, literally, you know, really starting badly in the late 1800s. Um, and so they just wanted to protect their sort of ancestral seat there as best they could. Of course, regain Bamiyan and then regain some of the villages that went up the Darius Suf. So what I did know at the time, I learned later, that Dostum's area was not the Darius Suf Valley. He was the, whatever, the most effective combat leader, but the area we were in when we infilled initially, in Dehi, that was basically a, a Hazara area. And then further up, and I glossed over this, but um, we we had a, a, a excursion to Taliban, the first Taliban prisoners we had, we had I, I think anyone had seen, mm on the American side, and it was through a village called Bazari Shukte, which was a Hazara village that had been raised. And I remember it was burnt, I mean, like something you see in Ukraine now, it was just burnt, destroyed, and uh, the Hazara people were like, hey, you know, the Talbs came through, they came all the way up as far as they could, they burned everything, and then they left. Mm -hmm. And they did other unspeakable things. But, so the Hazara were like, I don't know, just, they knew that they, they had, they were at a disadvantage and that all, it was all they could do to ally with someone strong, make an alliance with the Uzbeks and, and the, the you know, Tajiks, and that was their key to survival. 
And uh, Kareem Khalili was a very quiet guy, very kind of studious guy. He looked studious, he had glasses, and kind of like like professor professor type, kind of very thoughtful guy, very quiet. Um, it, you know, he, he's very clear. We're like, we're here to help you. How can we help you? We propose to bring in these teams, and they can bring in air power, and that will help you, and then we'll attack Bamiyan, and we'll, we'll defeat the Taliban, and, and you can take Bamiyan. What I wasn't sure of was their capability on the ground, mm -hmm. because I didn't get a sense, like, I didn't see a lot of fighters like I did with Dostum, mm -hmm. you know, so I was kind of wondering, where are those guys? I think they were up closer to Bamiyan. See, we didn't go to Bamiyan. So we brought the teams in, and uh, the OGA and the, the ODA, and they were sort of linked up together, and then we left, and mm -hmm. then we went all the way back. And by the time we got back to link up with the ODA 595 and JR, they were already pushing through the final pass at the head of the, the valley, which is in the, in the movie 12 Strong is sort of, you know, the rockets flying, all that kind of stuff. I missed all that. And so when I got there, it was the, the aftermath of, you know, there's some bodies here and there and some destroyed kit. And then, of course, there were the the tanks that were, I guess, hit with proximity fuses from the air. And I remember the Afghans were perplexed about how we could strike so accurately because they would say, well, the Russians would just come in and bomb it with dumb bombs and they would hit everybody and kids and everything, obviously. And uh, you guys don't do that. It's pretty impressive. And I said, yeah, well, you know, spent a lot of money <laughs> developing this capability. But yeah, so there were tanks that the Talibs had that were knocked out and it was just sort of wreckage as we tried to catch up to OD 595 and, um, and, and, and JR and Alex, actually. And so we linked up with them uh, south of Mazar Sharif at the Klai Jungi Fortress, which had just been evacuated by the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And I remember because I called, like we had, a, we had an iridium, we had an iridium. So I called Alex, uh, the Team XO, and I said, hey, where, where, are, you, where are you all at? He's like, we're at this fort. It looks like something out of the Foreign Legion. You can't miss it. And sure enough, you couldn't because it's on the south side, the south kind of west side of Mazar. And there it was, you know, big parapets and all that kind of stuff. So we went there, and then Dostum had us there with his guys for a while. I can't remember how long. But I think it was twofold. You know, you want to keep an eye on us, too. We want us, like, milling around. And uh, I always noticed that they had minders. Like, you know, Dostum wanted to know what we were up to, which is fine. I get it. Um, and so we were there for a while, and what was interesting about that place, which became the, the, the focus of the, the, the prisoner uprising, was it was a bifurcated compound, massive, and on the southern side, where all the stables were and the granaries, there was also conixes. So I was with, um, I remember Sergeant Major Mario Vigil and I, he was the 3rd Battalion, 5th Group, so everybody closed on this place. It was. Our team, Team Alpha, ODA 595, it was it was 3rd uh, Battalion, 5th Special Forces Group, Mark Mitchell's staff, and Sergeant Major V. Hill. And uh, Sergeant Major V. Hill and I kind of knew each other. He said, let's go, let's go look around, you know. So we were snooping around the fort, and it was just packed with mines, anti-tank mines, anti-personnel mines, and then they had these six or seven conixes in the south courtyard, southern courtyard, and they were just packed with, you name it. PPSH-41s, M1 Garands, I mean, everything you could ever imagine some arms dealer would send were, were there. Ammunition, uh, out the yin-yang dishkas, um, 
and uh, 107 rockets, and then they had like a, a single shot, I don't know if you've seen them, the tripod, a single shot 107 that, that I guess they developed for Spetsnaz, but, but anyway, they had all that stuff. And I remember going around and I was cherry picking some stuff. They had bayonets. They were World War I bayonets, so we grabbed those as war trophies. And then I never forget, we in one room, and to this day I regret not bringing this back. It was a like paper mural, for lack of a better word, but some Talib had taken colored pencils. Uh -huh. And he had colored a Taliban flag, but it, he was a good artist. And it was, you know, tacked to the wall. And I remember Mario and I looked at each other, and I'm like, Sir, do you want that? He goes, we want it. And he, I know you want it. And then I, I, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to take it. So I took it, and I rolled it up, and uh, I kept that. And I ended up sticking it in an old Stinger missile tube that we found later. <laughs> and, uh, and then I never got it back because you're not going to bring a Stinger missile tube right, back, to, right. you know, back to the States. Right, so at least not on commercial air. So, uh, so I, I don't like know. Like TSA would know what that mm -hmm. is. Yeah, you're right. Maybe they wouldn't. There was no grip stock. It was just, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So we uh, we found all this crap, and and there was mines galore. Well, that became the ammunition that was used for the prison uprising. A lot of it. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum. Restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. So everyone kind of like ended up coalescing around this uh, this fortress, and it ended up. At what point did it started getting to um, used as a prison? So, um, yeah, I'll just uh, lead up to the day. So we moved from the Klaijungi Fort to uh, another place on the on the east side of town, and. We started to separate ourselves from Dostum, and Dostum was doing his own thing, and you know, whatever. The, the politics between him and Ottawa were getting kind of uh, fraught. Um, Mike and I ended up getting told to go to um, the southern part of Kandus. There's a town called Poli uh, Kumri. And uh, Poli Kumri, there was a sub commander there that we were supposed to link up with and convince him to essentially attack or at least block the southern uh, exodus from Kandus. So the idea was Dostum, ODA 595, JR, all those guys, the sort of task force, 
would push from west to east on conduits, call on close air support, and then they would isolate conduits as a urban center. So we went down there. Uh, this is a day, day or two before uh, the prisoner uprising, and we met with this guy. And I remember we sat down, we had tea and whatever, you know, uh, pistachios, and he was having none of it. He was not interested in moving because, from his point of view, they had that town and they had no interest in moving anywhere. They were going to sit on that town. So everybody was starting to carve up the pie, right? Mm -hmm. So Mike got really frustrated. I remember he, he was upset with this guy. I was frustrated, but I wasn't really upset. He was upset with the guy, and he pulled out of you, and he's like kind of in my ear, like cursing guy, like, I can't believe this guy, you know. I said, well, we're done. Like, you can't force him to do anything. So Mike's like, yeah, you're right. And then we ended up linking up with Alex in a bourgeois neighborhood. It was really weird. I guess the Soviets had built. And they're over there talking. I'm roaming around this place, and it was like a time capsule. They had these family photos in this house from like the late 70s like before the, the the war and the revolution people in bell bottoms and no burkas it was really surreal We're walking around and i'm waiting on them to talk they ended up conferring and it was decided that the next morning mike and i would go back to mazari sharif i wasn't part of that conversation that was between alex and mike and um i don't know at that time whether alex had heard or mike had also heard that there were prisoners but we found that out on the way back. And it was weird, you know, the Afghans are always like, at a checkpoint, you'd arrive at the checkpoint, chit chat with the guy. Uh, we had, um, I was driving, but we had an Afghan with us. And they said, oh, there's 300, it was always Chechens for some reason. There are 300 Chechens up ahead and they're really bad news people and you gotta watch out, this kind of thing. And so uh, we're like, okay. So we went forward and um, it was funny because we asked these guys like, hey, if you know where Bin Laden is, you know, let us know, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of you kind of thing. And they were just like, yeah, we don't know where he is. But anyway, well, we went up and um, we ended up running into the vanguard of Dostum's group. And uh, that was the evening before the uprising started. And it was, you know, late afternoon. We were hoping to get up there. I personally thought maybe we could get in a position we could call for Cass on these so-called bad guy Chechens and, and be done with them. And uh, I mean, you know, you know, consistent with the law of armed conflict, but you know, basically that was that that made sense to me, right? We'll get in a position. We'll call Castle. Uh, but we got there, and, and they were gone. And then Jaron pulled Mike aside, and I was near him, but not within earshot, so I couldn't really hear what was being said. And that was when we, you know, they were discussing the prisoners, that the prisoners had come out of Condus, that Dosen had made a decision to take them to the Kalijengi Fortress, and that. Y'all should go, someone needs to go and interview these guys because there's a treasure trove of information. These are the guys, like Dave said, these are the guys we've been looking for. Because up to that point, all the prisoners we ran into, all the detainees or whatever you want to call them, they had all been Afghans. Uh -huh. And they weren't like necessarily Pashtuns. They were, they, were, they were like Turkmen guys who had been pressed into service. So they were sort of, quite honestly, like I, pathetic. I felt, kind of felt sorry for some of them because they're like, hey, I got gunpoint. I was told to go fight you guys. And but they always said the the, the Al Qaeda guys, the Al Ansar Brigade guys, the right. 055 Brigade guys, they're just one terrain feature ahead. You just gotta you gotta catch them. You're gonna catch them, but they're they're over there, and uh, we never saw them. And so uh, when we heard that, it was like, oh, this is this is why we came here. These are the droids we're looking for, right? So we we went back to um, Mazar, and then it was right at dusk we got to the fort, 
Um, and I remember the guards, and it's in the book, of course, the bar guards were really cagey acting, and, and Dave was talking to them, and they were, he said, oh, man, they're, they're, they're all amped or something to that effect. We go into the fort right to the point where the prisoner uprising would start, and I parked. We had a Toyota surf vehicle with all these Japanese stickers on it from Hokkaido, I remember, <laughs> like a used car or something. I don't know how we got it. But, but anyway, um, we go into the, uh, the fort, and there's, I remember seeing a guy dead under a tarp with a wispy beard, and his beard was like kind of blowing in the wind. And I was looking at him, and I'm like, what happened here? And Dave was talking to the guy, so I couldn't you know, figure it out. And then Dave came back. He was, hey, we need to leave and come back tomorrow. This is not good now. It's dark, and the guards are sort of unhappy, and, and someone was killed, et cetera. And so on the way back, I learned from Dave that um, uh, there had been a guy who uh, had killed himself with a grenade. And uh, and then he took some of uh, the Northern Alliance guys, uh, unfortunately, had died as well. And that was when I realized, okay, these guys, they're armed or, yeah, you yeah. know, there's a problem here. But I didn't, I didn't go, sadly, I didn't think about it, you know, and, you know, I didn't go second, third. There wasn't know. so much you could really do about it at that moment either. It just seemed like that's Afghanistan. Right. And, you know, and I was like, okay, that's sad. Okay, we'll get back. So we got back, but you're busy. We get back. We say, okay, we're going in tomorrow, but there's only three or four of us there at the at the MSS we were staying at, and so we had a, a radio. So someone had to watch the radio. So we'd split up, you know, like DA six kind of thing. We'd split up our duties, right? Two hours on, and the next guy's on. And um, the next morning, uh, about seven thirty, I remember the MRSAT rang, and Mike was up, and he got it, and I was up. And he's chatting, and it's Alex. And Alex said, "Hey, we had this uh, Waz truck or uh, uh, whatever Waz Jeep, Russian Jeep that had been delivered, and it was kind of a piece of junk. It, you need to deliver that to Polycomri because I have no wheels, and I'm relying on the Afghans. I need my own wheels." It's like fair enough. So we were going to go in at eight. That was the plan. And then Mike turned to me, I recall, and he said, "Hey, change the plans. You're going to go with another guy, Greg, and you're going to go deliver this vehicle." to the to Alex. So it's a three hour trip. And I said, okay, what about the, 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 the bad guys? What about the Talibs? Or we just call them Talibs. They were, you know, Al Ansarmi guys. He said, well, we'll link up, you deliver the vehicle, you come back, we'll link up in the afternoon and there'll be plenty of them to, to cause you know, I was, I'll be honest with you, I was curious to see who the hell these guys were. Right. You know? Cause when I got there the night before, they were all packed in the pink uh, house in the basement. So I didn't see any of them. Um, anyway, we got down the road. I never forget this. Let me back up. Mike and Dave got in the Toyota Surf, and the thing had a problem when start, so you had to clutch start it. So Dave's like, "How do I clutch start it?" And so I said, "Oh, I got to push it." So we pushed it. He clutch started. It got going. I said, "See you guys later." And that's the last I, I saw that. Sadly, that's the last time I saw Mike uh, alive, and 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 you know I would see Dave later. But so we left. Uh, and I drove that was about 30, 45 minutes outside of Mazar Sharif and it broke down, something with the distributor cap. So fortunately, I had a guy from Fifth Group who was also this, this awesome mechanic. He was like a motorcycle guy, he designed his own Harleys, and he got up there and, you know, th those engines aren't that complex. He was like, it's a distributor cap and we're going to have to get a new one. And so we towed that vehicle back to Mazar. And this is where I really feel bad is I came back to the MSS. And I'm like trying to problem solve. So I'm like, 
where's Dave and Mike? And said, oh, we haven't heard from them yet. They're, they're still busy. You know, they're, they're working. There's a lot mm. of guys to go through. I said, okay. I said, well, I need to get this vehicle fixed. So they linked me up with this Afghan. who was like an Afghan grease monkey. And we went to the bazaar to get a distributor cap. Because any task like that fell on me, which is fine. I was, you know, sui spontaneous, right? So I, I was like, okay, fine. It was when I came back that um, I knew something was up. Mm -hmm. And at one point, and this is where I didn't, you know, you get those cues, but you don't, in retrospect, they make sense, but at the time, they didn't mm -hmm. make sense. So Paul Cyberson, who uh, was there, and I knew at BMI, he was a year ahead of me, and he sadly passed away. He was killed in uh, Iraq in uh, 2004. He came up to me from, you know, Serb Battalion, and he, uh, he said, hey, have you heard from uh, the guys down at Clyde Jungee? Have you heard anything from them? It was like, I heard some rumors, it was like some shenanigans going on or something like that, but it was couched in a way that, I mean, I don't know, in retrospect, I don't know, I can't remember what he said, but it was, I wish I had it, it asked seemed, a It seemed more casual than what it was. Yeah, I guess. I mean, in retrospect, what he was talking about was the uprising, but right. but it wasn't relayed to them. It was related to them through Afghans right. in kind of a convoluted manner. Right. I said, I, I'm sorry, I haven't heard anything. And I went in, and I remember talking to the guys, my team, and they were like, uh, and we haven't heard anything. And then I was like, okay. And so Paul was like, okay, fine. And then he went back, presumably to talk to Major Mitchell or Kurt Sontag or one of those guys. I, I don't know. And... Um, and then I went to get that stuff, and when I came back later in the afternoon, the comment was, I'm glad you're back. I wish you had been here. Greg said that, I think. And uh, I said, what do you mean? He goes, there's something going on at the fort. I had to send Glenn, the medic, the other medic, there was two, um, actually a PA, they are both PAs, um, to the fort to investigate, and he went with the Brits. And I, I kind of glossed over some things, but the night before, the SBS detachment had arrived. I didn't even know where they were there, and there was a, some shooting outside, and we went to kind of battle stations with 100% security, and all of a sudden I heard British accents. Chatted this guy up, figured out he was a medic, you know, British, British uh, military guy. So they had gone in with Mark Mitchell, Glenn had, but, you know, Greg had to stay because we had to guard the, the equipment, and, and then I was out getting, you know, a distributor cap for the vehicle. So... We were trying to take stock of what was going on, and then shortly thereafter, Dave showed up. And it was right at, like, gloaming, right at dusk. And Dave was, uh, you know, he was not in his, he was usually a pretty jovial, carefree, kind of, you know, happy-go-lucky guy, and he was not. And he had dirt all over him, and he had this AK, and I knew he didn't have an AK. He didn't carry an AK, he just carried a pistol. He had a Browning High Power. So I'm like, that must be Mike's AK, I remember thinking. And it was covered in dirt. I mean, he clearly something happened. And I was like, Dave, what happened? And he went on and started telling me the story, but it was sort of in bits and pieces. And it was all about the the, the Dagestani guy, that bat, or something like that, you know. It was bits and pieces, I'm trying to put it together. And of course, I'm going, okay, there's a fight going on. You know, where's Mike? And um, And then he said, Mike got out. The so-and-so, the Uzbek, my friend, told me he got out. I talked to him, he got out. I said, okay. So I was hopeful, as we all were. And then, you know, I don't know how much time elapsed. And then the Brits came back with Mitchell, but we were on a different floor. So the Brits came back. I didn't see uh, Major Mitchell or any of those guys. 
And uh, they came up and they said, hey, are you Dave? And he's like, yeah. I said, you know, and they said, okay, good. Oh, all right, mate. We got you, Dave. Where's Mike? We said, we don't know. And he said, oh, wow. And then they sat down and we were just sort of relaxing. It kind of collapsed down there, leaning up against the wall. And then there was a step bass was there and he's American. And I started chatting with him. And uh, Steph was uh, like, hey, man, it was bad in there. Like, he was telling me about it. And I was sort of, and he was very, he's kind of a nonplussed kind of guy, but he was, he was like, man, it was bad in there, you know. And he's told me the whole thing. And then Glenn, of course, was more animated. And he was like, he was going off on this guy and that guy because the Afghans. Because the, at one point, they'd been introduced to the fort right in the line of fire. And he was livid about that, which mm -hmm. I totally understand. And he was he was just going off about that. But anyway, heard about all the JDMs have been dropped, uh, but I, I wasn't there, you know. And I was like, God damn it, you know. So um, they had decided to pull back after that initial push in. They dropped the JDMs, which turned out to be decisive, as I understand it, in terms of shattering the potential of the enemy to take the whole compound. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, I saw that because there were just, you know, corpses everywhere and the trees were decimated and our vehicle was like a cheese grater and, and there was just, it was made, it was a real fight. Um, so that night, um, I remember, I said, I'll, I'll watch the radio, you know, and uh, we're going first thing in the morning, but right now we're going to regroup. And so the MR sat rings and... Uh, I pick it up, it's like three in the morning, someone in the States, and they're like, hey, how's it going? My name's Phil. I said, hey, how you doing, Phil? And he goes, how's it going, buddy? And I said, uh, it's, uh, it's, you know, I don't know what I said. And, um, but he was trying to get information out of me to figure out what the status was for Mike and Dave. And I said, well, Dave's been returned, but we haven't found Mike yet. And uh, he kept kind of pushing me to extrapolate and I said I don't know and mm -hmm. then finally I kind of I was starting to get a little frustrated and I said something like well this is what Dave told me and it was it was very kind of cynical like you know you can infer from that, that that you know that you know whatever so uh and then he hung up and then that was it we said hey talk to you later hang in there I said we're going in the morning he said okay I'll relay that well what I realized now I didn't know at the time that information went to Guy X, who ended up briefing, eventually getting the director, eventually briefing the president. So, but they didn't tell me that. I probably would have comported myself differently right, if someone right. asked me that. I would, but I was pretty frank. And um, the next morning we went in. There's a little bit of a f up, breaking contact between us and Third Battalion headquarters, and uh, as a result. They got in there before us, and we came in right behind them, but then I didn't know where they were. And so we ended up in a different part of the fort vis-a-vis -vis the, 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 the command element, which was led by Major Mitchell. Uh, and, uh, and there was a T-55 tank you've probably seen in some of the photos um, that was firing into the southern courtyard, but it was up on a, there was a ramp, so it was up on the parapet firing into the southern courtyard distance of maybe 300, 400 meters, maybe. And... Uh, so we're trying to figure out and get our bearings. And it's Greg and I. And Greg said, well, you know, this is smart. He said, hey, first things first, set up the, the radio, get comms, make sure they know we're here, and then we'll go from there. And, you know, there's, like, bodies 
that was the first time I'd gotten up close to guys that looked like they were friendly, that were killed, and there was some Hazara guys that were mm -hmm. dead. Uh, and I was like, okay. And um, anyway, so um, I got comms and with the with the base, and uh, I said, hey, we're here, and this is what's going on. And then we keyed the mic, like you know, you could hear all the gunfire. There's this cacophony of gunfire, and you didn't know where it was coming from. And it's a very sort of asymmetric kind of structure, you know, so every turn there was something, you know, you didn't know. So you didn't know where the gunfire was coming from. And um, we hadn't been there that long and I established comms and then all of a sudden I told Greg, I remember saying, Greg, I said, I think third battalion guys are over there. So we probably need to link up with them. And right about then, I think we were getting up, we we're just about to fold up the antenna and put it in the side of this uh, backpack. and. Um, and all of a sudden, I saw this shadow. It was a nice day, you know, maybe like low 60s. Shadow cast itself across the wall of the fort in front of me, like just like that, a flicker. And then other peripheral, uh, my right side, peripheral vision, I saw what looked like a giant black lawn dart just for a split second. And I remember thinking, what the hell is that? And then all of a sudden, this horrendous explosion that you see in the, you can see the video, it was taken from the outside of the fort. And we were, people don't believe this, but we were 170 meters away. And there were guys a lot closer. Mm -hmm. uh, some who were wounded pretty pretty badly and some who, Afghans who were killed. Um, anyway, so we, you know, got in the prone position and then there was all sorts of like second, you know, secondary missiles. And I, the one thing I didn't know about that, because I remember training like, you know, Ernie Tabata, I don't know if he was still there at the yeah. Q course, but he would always talk about what's the biggest danger, secondary missiles. And I remember thinking about him, secondary missiles, and I, I like got down and all these things are landing on me and they're hot. Mm -hmm. They were just like burning into my back and, and I thought for half a second I'd been hit, but I wasn't. It was just like earth. There's so much energy in that bomb, mm -hmm. you know, and it just rained on us. So we brushed that off, kind of like the Blues Brothers, and then um I'd seen also, this is the part that really kind of, I felt like it was intimidating. I saw a big chunk of something hit the wall in front of me. It was like gray, black smoke. Bam, that must have been a giant chunk of shrapnel from that bomb. And I thought, God, thank God. It was, you know, it's just blind luck where you are in the structure, whether you're going to get hit or not, the way that thing fragments. But the good news was that it hit at the base of this, this wall. So... To an extent, that served as a sump, in my my view, that mm -hmm. just kind of absorb a lot of the the blast. But still, it was, it was a huge, you know, net explosive weight. So um, the tank was flipped, as you probably know. The turret on those tanks that we've seen in Ukraine, it comes off, and you know, the whole tank crew was killed, and um, everything was rubbled, and a bunch of equipment was lost, and uh, there were several wounded who had to be evac. So then the next, you know, several hours were spent evacing people. Um, and, um, yeah, we were left actually, accidentally, we were left behind in the fort, Greg and I. So Greg, Greg was pretty upset about that, which is understandable. And he's like, they left us, man. Your guys left us. And I said, well, they didn't do it on purpose, but we were gone. And literally we were on the radio and, uh, the dust cloud had just settled. And then the, one of the Brits came to me and he was running and he was covered in dust. He looked like a cartoon character. Just his eyes were... He had blood in his ears, and he, he ran up to me, and he was yelling, get on that radio and call that bastard off. He just dropped a bomb on us. Mm -hmm. Because at the, the initial impression I had is that 
it had been a 107 or something that had hit some of the mines in one of the rooms because a lot of those rooms were packed with stuff and that it had a secondary and that blew up. And he said, no, no, it was a bomb. And so I had to call back to the siege of Sodaf and relay to the guy who answered to go to the joint fires element, get a hold of Kmart, because I wasn't talking to the AWACS. Right. Tell that pilot to cease fire, to stop, drop, you know, that, that, that you had, we had friendly, well, he said first, we have, I think he said we have casualties, so I relayed that to them. And so, you know, later on I got the rest of the story on the other end, but they relayed the message, the pilot stopped what he was doing, and, and, um, and then we uh, started to, I guess, uh, triage the guys, at least um, as best they could over there. But you got to remember, I didn't know where they were. Right. So I didn't know that how many guys were killed or how many guys were hurt. All I saw was a giant plume of dust. And it was big enough structured you couldn't see that far. And that's how we got left, because I remember I looked over my shoulders on the radio, and they were there, and then all of a sudden Greg's like, they left us. And I looked back, and they were gone. And uh, so we had to get to our vehicle. <laughs> I remember we go to the vehicle, we had this... Uh, at that point, we got a new vehicle. It was a little Toyota minivan that was parked on the very of the gate. And it was all bubbled up from the overpressure, but the windows, strangely, were not blown out. It was weird. And all of a sudden, out of the, the dust comes this giant Brit named Jono. And uh, he must have been from, like, I don't know, Newcastle or something. Like, he had this really thick accent. And he was like, a bloody door on the sliding door of the the the... the Toyota van wouldn't work. And I was just like, manhandle it. And he just ripped it off. It just came <laughs> off, like the whole door. And he just tossed it. He was like, looked at it and he just tossed it to the side. And I said, oh, we got air conditioning now. And and, uh, and then we got in the thing. We had a couple of soldiers from 10th Mountain. There was a QRF element that had been called in. And a couple of them had been left. So it was a bit of a goat rope getting yeah. out of there. We got out, we assembled outside and then a Major Mitchell was there kind of got everybody together and then decided that we had to take the casualties somewhere else, that it was unsafe to land a medevac bird near the fort. And so that was reset. Like, and then, and then you know, the, the battalion, I believe the group surgeon was there, fortunately, and he was able to help our casualties. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. and he did a great job. Anyway, they were evac'd, the casualties were evac'd, uh, I believe that night if I'm, I'm not mistaken, but things were, were happening, you know, in parallel and simultaneously, right? So um, then that night they got ECAS in the form of AC-130. So it's in the book. They must have worked that place for about three hours. So the next morning, I mean, it was like showers of sparks and uh, Alex and Jared were a little closer. And Alex said at one point, the one of the bad guys was adjusting fire with the 82 millimeter mortar and then I guess the 40 millimeter Beaufort's got him eventually, but it was sort of like, Alex relayed the story, you know, it's, hey, they're adjusting fire on us, adjusting the flexion. Bracketing. He's bracketing. Goes well, far, he, I guess he goes maybe they were bracketing, like, ah. but they said yeah. they were walking it, whatever. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, nothing. <laughs> it's like, oh, you got him. Um, the next morning, um, it was like a medieval battlefield because you look in the southern courtyard, and there's pictures of it in the book. Um, it was just like, you know, bodies every couple, maybe five, six feet. And they were just pretty evenly scattered about. And just clumps of, like, rags, they look like. And I remember at that point we were up on the corner, which would have been, the, like, the southeastern corner. And there was this little room, almost like a, like a, a 
a rook tower or something like that with a little loophole. And there was a guy shooting through there. And uh, it was the radio operator guy from Dostum's guy. It was the same guy, and I remember talking to him. And, and uh, there were a couple of dead um, Al-Ansarvigate guys just lying there. And, uh, you know, so it was like, okay. And then, um, I don't know who killed them, but they, they were, they were mm -hmm. you know, one, one of many. And uh, I remember sitting next to, kneeling next to, I think it was Major Mitchell, and these poor horses had been tied up I never forget this, to these stanchions or whatever, um, right next to their, their trough, right? And they had weathered the whole AC-130 strike. Really? Right up. Holy shit. And they were like limping. One was limping on three legs. I mean, you know, animal rights people, get really, I mean, it's, it was terrible. They were yeah. just like limping around. And a couple of them were just a absolutely eviscerated. Like, I mean, like this, carcass, you know. And then others were wounded. And then there's cat dead. Anything that had a heat signature yeah. that was above ground was fair game that night. Yeah. And I just remember someone saying, oh, someone should put that horse out of its misery. I'm sure someone did, but it was tight. It was still tied up and it was like limping around on three legs. I was like, oh, man. And uh, anyway, then the Afghans, if I recall, and like I said, this is kind of stream of consciousness, but they did an assault. And the idea was they were going to clear, I believe, from east or west to east across the southern courtyard. And that's when a couple of the bad guys came out because they were still alive. Yeah. That was the part that struck me is that fort, because it's, you know, made out of adobe, essentially, Afghan version of adobe, it's kind of a pretty resilient thing, like sandbags. So if you were hunkered down in those, those granaries or in the mm -hmm. stables, you, you probably, I mean, you probably concussed, but you, if you didn't, if you hunkered down, you didn't get, you didn't catch any of the frag, you're still going to be alive. Right? right. And they were. And they were pretty feisty. I mean, they were still fighting because there was gunfire, and then the Afghans would run away, and they come back, and it was it was you know it was very indecisive kind of fighting. And finally, after this went on for a while, I think Dostum had arrived in town, and he brought someone brought a T sixty two. And uh, one of the guys that I talked to him the other day, he's in New Jersey now. Uh, he was like, "Yeah, I, I was the guy who brought the tank." So they came in. And uh, they started working that main gun on each um, each one of those those granary kind of stable things and figuring out where it was always Chechens, right? They're Chechens and they're okay, fine. Whoever they are, they're bad guys. So they were firing one into the other, and the guy I remember he's throwing the the brass out of the, the cupola, you know, onto the ground. And uh, finally, it was like crickets. There was nobody, nobody left that we could tell. And uh, except three came out. Later that day, and I remember there was this pretty heavy explosion, like a boom, like that. I was like, what the hell was that? Was that the main gun? It didn't sound like the main gun. And then they brought these guys out on a tarp who were, sadly, they were killed, North Alliance guys, and there was a feigned surrender. I don't know what they detonated, whether it was a grenade. It was bigger than a grenade. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it was suicide belts weren't that common then, so I don't know what it was, but the guy clacked off. Well, they had all the ordnance, had all those mines. Yeah, it, it could have been anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And he killed three, uh, three North Alliance guys. Took he, he killed them, and um, and then that was it. And then later we found out that there were eighty-six guys in the bunker that were still alive, including John Walker Lind. But no one was really fixated on the bunker, and I knew there was a, a, a basement to that that building. But I just saw these corpses, and I assumed, you know, 
that the Al Qaeda guys, Al Ansari guys, had kind of fought to the death, mm -hmm. you know, and that was the end of it. And um, and then, you know, then we uh, we found uh, Mike, uh, actually um, one of the Alliance guys, that, you know, was able to, to identify him. And then Mario, Sir Major Vigil, and I found him, and and then we repatriated him. Mm -hmm. And and then that was the end of our piece of that. Now, it still went on because, as I understand, um, the Afghans and some ICRC guys, I think, I went into the the bunker basement. Toby's got it all in there. He's got mm -hmm. it, he, he you know he's got it in detail. But uh, and we're shot, and so then the Afghans are like, okay, we got to deal with these guys, and so they tried to burn them out with diesel and frags or something like that, and didn't work. And then they brought in a water truck. And then they flooded it, and that's when they, they eventually, I think, got hype, hyped out or and surrendered. Uh, and, and that was it, and there was 86 of them. And then that's when John Walker Lynn, the next day or later that evening, of course, was discovered, and then that created a whole another Avalanche. Uh, yeah, of a chain of of events. And John Walker Lind is now out of prison and writing op-eds about the war crimes, horrible war crimes that we committed yeah. in, in and, Afghanistan. And, and, during actually, the didn't he praise ISIS and and yeah? Bro. But he he writes under the name of like Yahya Lind now. I mean, he served 16 years and got out for good behavior. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, if, if you guys have not read it, uh, definitely check out Toby's book, uh, First Casually. It it really goes into detail because he, he you know interviewed everybody. I mean, he had incredible access uh, to the to the team involved. Um, he talked a lot to Dave about the events uh, of that day because yeah. you know uh, when Justin's talking about these this prisoner uprising, uprising, it's not like a a prison riot in the u.s these people were taken in mass uh and, and weren't really disarmed they weren't they weren't yeah. searched they weren't disarmed they were just like sequestered so a lot of them still had all of their you know their weapons yeah. and it, it was it was a planned uprising and that's part of the thing about john walker lind is he was very aware of this if not a party to it and I, I guess it's. I guess it's only worth sixteen years. What, what was the uh, What was the next step for you after that? You said that that was kind of your piece of it was done, and you guys left at that point after you repatriated uh, Mike Spann's remains. Yeah. Well, he was taken back to the states. Alex went back with him, um, and then there was the funeral at Arlington. In fact, I visited his uh, his tomb, his uh, grave at Arlington uh, last week with my son. Um, and then there was a funeral. I actually went back for that. But what happened was the team was sort of uh, dissolved, right? And and everybody went off to do whatever their new mission was. And then I was still, um, I still had time on my clock, so to speak. So I, I ended up going on another trip and joining another team down in Kandahar. And uh, and then I ended up in Oregon province. And that was during the Anaconda phase of things. So. But it was a little slower there, although there's some action. It was mainly out east in Anaconda, as you know, and uh, and that that whole thing. So so I was there during Anaconda, but not in the east, you know. Um, and then I redeployed and uh, went back to group, and then I became the HHC fifth group commander uh, that summer. And then we got ready for Iraq, probably about 
August, so we've, I'm back by June or whatever, May, June, I can't remember, and and then next thing you know, by August, someone said, hey, the, you know, Rumsfeld signed some DEP order or something that we're, we're going to go, uh, probably going to go after Saddam. And then that started a whole chain of events for the invasion. So very quickly became Afghanistan was in the rearview mirror, and we're going to Iraq in the span of, you know, months. Mm -hmm. And then we were on the ground. I mean, fifth group infiltrated D minus two. So Can you uh, walk us through that. Where, where were you at during that time? Um, I was uh, I was a battle captain actually. So what happened was the the headquarters absorbed. We grew from an HAC into a siege of and so um, we absorbed a bunch of reservist uh, uh, augmentees who were staff guys. So they were officers mainly, but not exclusively. And we built out the headquarters so they had a JMD, you know, and it, we just started filling the slots. And then we did all the manifesting. And uh, my first sergeant, Rob Glass, um, he he and I kind of, that was stressful, man. I mean, by the time we got on the plane in like, I think it was January 03, I remember we watched the Super Bowl. And then it wasn't long there, long after that we were wheels up. And I remember getting on the plane. It was like really cold that, that, that day. And uh, it was just like a relief to get on the plane. And then we staged out of out of uh, out of Jordan. Uh, the siege of Sodaf was in Jordan, and then we had a, two battalions in Kuwait, and of course all the conventional forces were in Kuwait. You know, um, and then um, D minus two, there was infiltrations. D minus one, there were infiltrations. The air interdiction started uh, right around the same time as our infiltrations. It was mainly into Al Umbar and into South Center Iraq. So my duty was to battle track the south, southern, and central part of Iraq. So 2nd and 3rd Battalion, 5th Group. 1st Battalion was in al doing counter-theater ballistic missile suppression, scud hunting. Uh, and that, that went on until, um, man, I don't even remember, maybe like April or something like that, or May. I think it was April. But, uh, yeah, it was pretty heady times. And then, But that was a conventional fight. We were the supporting effort, you know, so it was very different. Alambar was ours, along with the, the Brits and the Aussies, but Center and South, that was, you know, 5th Corps and, and uh, 1MEF. And then we had, 2nd uh, Battalion had infiltrations into center, Central Iraq. So they were doing strategic reconnaissance. And I, I remember uh, Iran, you know, I mean, it was just, you know, I was an operator then, now I'm, now I'm a staff guy and I'm briefing you know, Colonel Mulholland every every day, twice a day. Um, my boss was um, uh, Mark Schwartz, who was the, the S3 of group, and that was more of a staff grind, you know. Um, I do I do remember this, that uh, like the day we infilled, the, the group infilled was D, I guess it was D minus two. The word came down from Soxon and was, you know, execute, 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 kind of like emphatically. And we're like, sir, we, received the execute order, like Mark Schwartz. If I remember, he talked to Colonel Mulholland, and uh, Colonel Mulholland wanted to pick up the SATCOM and talk to all three of his battalion commanders at once and, you know, say execute, execute, execute. And I remember the S6 had everything right. You know how comms are. Everything was right and good to go, and then, like, 10 minutes later, it failed. And I remember he keyed the mic, and I could hear the of the, the SATCOM not working. <laughs> and uh, and he, he just, it was like, he just, like, let the, the thing down, and he looked at the six. He was just like, all I want to do 
is talk to my commanders. Is that too much to ask? Or something like that. And then he turned to me, he said, call them on the MR sat or whatever the, the bat phone was. And I called them and, you know, that was it. And then we battle tracked the, the group, you know, from, from the headquarters. And, and then eventually they moved the command element into what became the, I believe it was a Rodwania Palace complex. So the hill where, near where Saddam's sons, the, he had the, 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 the lions and stuff and the zoo and stuff like that. And, and they set up there and then uh, I redeployed back to the States in um, the summer and then I PCS to Swick. So, you know, all the assignments things, the assignment cycle didn't change, mm -hmm. whether you were in combat or not. It actually got me in trouble uh, a little bit with Branch because I wanted to stay longer and I didn't know how the game was played, and I, you know, I was sort of tried to pull some strings, and um, that was the wrong answer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Anyway, they got me back. Well, before moving on, I, I would like to ask uh, a few of your, I guess, impressions of the difference between the invasion of Afghanistan and the invasion of Iraq, and what what some of your takeaways were, and, and how those two conflicts were prosecuted. I mean, very different countries, very different geographies and, and approaches, as you said, Iraq was largely conventional. Yeah. So two things. It starts with the difference of the countries and as most people who served over there, Afghanistan is much more rural than, than Iraq. I mean, there's plenty of rural areas in Iraq, but the preponderance of the population is uh, urban or kind of semi-urban based in Iraq. In Afghanistan, it's not. And so the centrality, that it's not customary in Afghanistan for the periphery to adhere to the center of Kabul. That they don't like that, which is the problem, right? That they don't want to obey Kabul. In Iraq, they've been under Saddam since what late '60s or whatever, and it's a, a much more uh, uh, wealth wealthier country with much more infrastructure and um, an urban, large urban middle class. And so that's socially, the, the society there was different. And I think that made the war different. Um, the other thing is we went in in the very beginning, and it's in the book, the whole, you know, option between Kofor Black's light touch approach or General Franks's let's drop the 18th Airborne Corps into, into uh, Afghanistan, which he probably thought was a light approach. Um, that, that had just unfolded well, and, and a lot of it was put together on the fly and it, and it worked. Mm -hmm. Iraq was a much more deliberate plan because I remember going to 5th Corps headquarters in October, it was right around September, October, late September, and uh, for a planning conference. And man, that was, you know, this was like, hey, this is how it's going to be done. Op orders. Decisive and maneuver, phasing, all this kind of stuff you're taught, and it was all done the American way of war, man, decisive maneuver. And actually it's kind of impressive. You're like, this is what the machine can do. And the machine did it and you see it unfold. Cause I saw it hour by hour unfold, you know? And uh, yeah, it was amazing, but it was a conventional fight. And we were in Iraq very much a, a subordinate or supporting effort. And it, that kind of, I think pissed some of the guys off. Chapped like, your ass a little bit. Yeah, I remember A15, I love them to death. They got mad because they were supposed to hit this target in a southern Iraq. It was a radio tower or something like that. And they were all amped up to do it, you know. And the Brits overran it like it just wasn't a thing. Oh, because it happened so that so it just quickly. So fast, yeah. yeah. And they were and they were stood down. And uh 
and they were champing at the bit because they had done some good stuff in uh, in, in Afghanistan. So anyway, they ended up getting plenty of plenty of work later down the on. line. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. But uh, but at the time they were they were you know they were pretty miffed. But anyway, you know the whole thing unfolded, and then there was that big uh, tick up up near Karbala. So the whole focus was sort of like in 91 to destroy the Republican Guard, Special Republican Guard. They're the center of gravity. I mean, it was cog analysis, all that kind of classic, you know, Schwerpunkt, you know, um, decisive maneuver kind of stuff that you're taught in Command and General Staff College and all that. Um, and it culminated there, and there was that operational pause, and then the, um, uh, the Saddam, you know, Fedayeen and those guys had sort of sort of gotten together and they attacked us, uh, you know, didn't attack me, I was in the headquarters, but they attacked, you know, the Vanguard there, third ID. And there was a bit of a fight there, as you remember. And then they eventually ended up overrunning Biap. There was a bit of a fight there. There was some fight, you know, there's obviously some fighting up in Baghdad. I remember that. And there, our first casualty I remember was, was uh, um, Sergeant Livesay. Um, I remember that because we had to try to coordinate an evacuation and it was it was like on a line between the marines and the army and that created some confusion it was it was bad and uh and anyway so other than that though it was you know we quickly overran baghdad the original plan had been to create these tactical assembly areas around baghdad but events overtook itself general blount did the famous thunder run and you know uh, colonel Perkins at the time, who ended up becoming my big boss years later, he was brigade commander, armor guy. So they took, uh, Baghdad was taken, and uh, and then it wasn't probably until later that summer that the first kind of IEDs started occurring, like very, you know, unsophisticated IEDs. How did, um, I'm, I'm interested, how, how did the ODAs perform during the invasion? Because I feel like most of the accounts we have uh, of this are actually from the invasion during Desert Storm. We've heard about some of those ODAs and what they were up to. I feel like not so much, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's a book I missed, but I feel like there hasn't been a whole lot out there about the special forces role during the 2003 invasion. Yeah, well, I, I don't know why. That's a great question, actually. I think it might have been kind of subsumed or shattered. By how by, big by the military effort was. Well, I think if the insurgency hadn't become what it became, in 04, really 05, um, it, you might have heard more about it. Mm -hmm. But there were so many other things going on, and it continued yeah. to go on. It transitioned from, you know, decisive maneuver to counterinsurgency campaign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you heard about, like, uh, was it uh, 525 in, in Desert Storm that was compromised, and they, they had the big tick with huge the firefight. With huge firefight, and were able to, fortunately, were able to uh, exfil. Um, a lot of it was similar. I mean, they had SR. The difference was they were infilled with vehicles. They were not infilled by foot. Mm -hmm. So they had mobility, and they were moving around. And the, the biggest risk you had, quite frankly, was friendly fire. I, I think that was more of a risk. There was a couple of close calls that fortunately uh, worked out. But, uh, but, you know, when you have a giant force moving forward, and you got Kiowa warriors screening forward, and they're looking for targets, you know, and you're in a non-tactical vehicle, even if it's marked with properly with VS-17 panels, mm -hmm. you look like Saddam Fedayeen, you know. So uh, so anyway, there's some close calls I recall about that, but but it's basically strategic reconnaissance, looking over key um, uh, uh, crossing points in the river where bridges were, stuff of that nature, 
Uh, Carbolic Gap was a big one. Um, and then Alambar, and then 3rd Battalion came into Baghdad uh, during the whole reduction of Baghdad, if I recall. I didn't follow that as closely. And then, boom, we were set up. Hey, you guys are arrived on the Palace Complex. You know, that this whole the structure that became Iraq that we all knew was, was, was coalescing, right? And then it was quickly like new rotations came in because I remember when we were leaving, 3rd ID was coming, or was it 3rd? No, it was 3rd uh, ACR, but uh, at the time it was Colonel McMaster was going into Al-Qaim and all this stuff was moving on and there was a whole new OIF rotation coming in. And then I left and I went back in the summer of 03, I went to SWIC and then... And so you were the, you were the gig pit guy, as you told me I, earlier. I became... I became the commander <laughs> of the 18 X-ray program, and I didn't know I was going to be that because originally the plan was um, I was going to be a 18 Alpha instructor, or at least that what the, the assignments uh, uh, guy told me. But anyway, I showed up late because I I pulled some strings. I stayed longer in uh, with the group. So you were in the doghouse. I was, but I didn't even realize until I got there. But like, ah, you know, whatever deal was struck and whatever assignment you had, and then you get. Um, my buddy, Pete, was leaving the x-ray program, and it had been around before as a National Guard program. And then in 02, I believe, after 9-11, when they had to ramp up the production of SF guys, I think it was 750 was the aim at the time, the, they, they expanded the program. So I inherited that in the summer of 03. And... Uh, Actually, it was it was it was a good prep, I thought, for selection. I mean, like I wish I had gone to that. Mm -hmm. as, as like a, phys as physically, a did a really great job preparing you know these yeah. young guys for selection. Yeah, it was there were some um, risks there because it's brag and and we like we wouldn't run selection uh, we wouldn't run the training uh, POI in August because it's oh, so right, hot. Yeah, and we had to watch that heat casualties. You know, obviously that was my biggest fear, and it was always. Uh, it was never the hottest day when you have a heat casualty, and it was never, the, not necessarily the least fit guy. I, I remember mm -hmm. this one soldier we had, X-ray candidate. He uh, he was a super fit, fast runner, and uh, he went down on the five mile run, and I was really worried about him. He, he, was, he ended up being fine, but that was that was a nightmare. Um, and then land navigation. Uh, a lot of guys don't realize that whether you do it spinning or that's a lot of work and that's a lot of um managing people and it's kind of a thankless job but we had a huge training area they had taken over an area that had been leased it was leased to the government by the rockefeller family i can't remember some rich family owned the train it was a big piece of real estate they called the north northern training area great for training land nav and we would run a nine hour uh uh, land nav examination, mini star, we called it. And that was great. That was great training. But the problem was <laughs> you always had a couple guys who'd come up, you know, missing the index. <laughs> yeah. So then I'd have to call a helicopter in sometimes to find them. <laughs> and then finally I got frustrated with that and I just told people, I said, if cadre catches you sleeping, you're dropped from the course because you're a safety hazard. Yeah. Because guys would come out of the wood line without a bead of sweat on them at like 9.15, index was 09. Where you been? Oh, I was trying my best to get here, Sergeant. I'm like, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like July in North Carolina with a ruck on. You don't have a bead of sweat on. You've been sleeping. Yeah. And so, anyway, I, I don't know. I, I'm. That was the part that was tough was um, the, 
coming up with rules and then you had to stick by them because I was a, that was a very big thing to me is that if I'm going to put out a rule, it has to apply evenly to everybody. Right, right. And where it became interesting was, um, and so I was pretty pretty ruthless. I remember, well, not ruthless, it was, it was hard and fast. I remember there was this guy, he was a really good student, but he was caught sleeping. Mm-hmm. And the rules were the rules. And I remember the cadre on the, on the mic were like, we caught roster number so-and-so, cold busted sleeping. And, and he didn't know I was listening. And uh, I said, oh, I'm sleeping, huh? And then he came back and I said, he's gone. They're like, well, you know, he's a really good guy. I said, I, sorry, rule, you know, if I'm going to apply it to all right. 150 it guys. Right, preferential. Yeah, yeah, I can't, you like the guy, I got it, but he broke the rules. He'll come back and he'll do fine. Right. Um, but yeah, that was tough. And then I'd say the, the other thing was, um, yeah, letting guys go that really wanted to be there but it broke in the rules. Just had a bad mm-hmm. day or got hurt. That that was that was that was tough, because you could see it, and you know they're you know it was, it was heart wrenching for them and to an extent for me. Um, yeah. Did you guys ever like think that? I mean, was there with when people go missing and it becomes a, like a safety hazard? Was there a reason that you didn't put like BFTs on them or something like that? Where I don't we, think you had them at that. We time. didn't have them. At that so that's a good point. That that was coming about. And I forget the nomenclature on the thing. But we actually had a guy from Sunto, a Finnish guy, come out and meet with us, and they were pushing whatever their their technology was. But we had, we eventually had a device, but that came about like as I was transitioning. I see. Okay. Yeah. So it was very much uh, uh, emerging, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know, maybe like oh oh six, maybe I oh five. I can't remember, but. Yeah, that was a huge problem. And then we had ATVs and we had to run the roads. You had to quickly mark all the points uh-huh. in a period of, you know, between the end index and the new start. And guys got hurt on ATVs. That was a whole other issue. <laughs> so there was a lot. I mean, there was a lot of movement. I, I can't let you go either without telling us about the gig pit. Okay, so <laughs> the gig pit was a uh, venue uh, that, was, that was set up before I got there. And it was simply uh, like a kiddie pool um, about, you know, two feet deep, if I remember, with sandbags and, you know, with water, right? And uh, it was muddy because it was, you know, whatever. It was, it was, it was a mud pit. And, um, and this is where students were physically corrected. There were times when, yes. And, and i got to be honest with you, I don't know, maybe, you know, I'd, I'd get a... Uh, thrown in prison today for doing that. But at the time we had issues with, uh, these were young guys, they were out of basic training. And honestly, there was kind of uneven Some discipline issues. discipline, right? And so some philosophy, the old SF guys would say, well, you know, it's all, we need to treat them like big boys. And if they fail, then you kick them out. But the problem was I couldn't just kick them out. Mm-hmm. So, and it was a collective thing. So you couldn't kick them out because like there was a mandate to get more people into SF. Yeah, I couldn't just arbitrarily or even on cause relieve a guy unless it was an honor violation. Uh-huh. Because that was not my purpose. My purpose was to prepare, prepare them, them for, for selection. selection. Right. And then selection did that. So it was not selection. That was very clear. The group commanders are clear about that. This is not mini selection. This is not filtration. This is preparation. And so fair enough, right? 
But the problem was you have all these young guys. At one point, we'd have 300-something students because you have a waiting training guys, med hold. I mean, it was a, a management issue. And, um, and you go in, and they were living in the barracks that had been kind of refurbished, World War II barracks. And there was, you know, I mean, you know, as young guys, I mean, they're just going to be doing stupid stuff, and, mm -hmm. and, and the place would be a mess, and, and you'd take them out and do some push-ups and wouldn't, wouldn't correct. So it was sort of an escalation of discipline uh, kind of thing, and the gig pit was the ultimate um, uh, octagon and whatever, the, the, <laughs> the ultimate corrective action that, that was at our disposal, short of kicking a guy out. But I, you know, like I said, there was there were certain hard and fast rules that that applied, and right. um, you know, I kicked guys out for honor violations. So guys were cheating because you could cheat on land nav, but we catch you and you'd be gone. Um, peers were good. I, I, the peers helped me uh, identify some people who were problematic in terms of their integrity and stuff of that nature that you never would have caught uh, otherwise. And then, um, yeah, and then. Sometimes with the cadre, uh, you had to watch that a little bit because guys, you know, guys would be guys that get a little carried away with PT and stuff like that. And uh, the other thing, too, is um, it's not all about PT. The problem is that when you have young guys and you have them for what's really just over three weeks, and, and you know, optimally, they, it's a 21, 22 day POI, I think it was 23 day POI. And then you got a little downtime and they go to selection. Mm -hmm. So you had to do a lot in a short amount of time. And so most of it, what can you imbue? You know, fitness, land navigation, some discipline, but you're not going to imbue experience. Mm -hmm. So the, the x-rays, from what I understand, got a reputation for being very fit, but cliquish within their own little group because they had many of them come through the pipeline together. It's because and of the gig pit. It was the man maker. Maybe they had this was, maybe, bonding experience. Maybe that was maybe that was the galvani that galvanized them. I don't know, but um, but in, in the criticism I got was it's not fair to the in-service guys because these guys have a month to prepare that the in-service guys don't. Right, and they have to do it on their own. They come back from a deployment. They, you know, they're out of shape. Whatever they got to whip themselves into shape and go, and that's not fair. Right, and. That's one way of looking at it. The other one was how you capture your statistics, right? Mm -hmm. So if you look at the statistics, they were very successful, um, but it's where you start the, the measurement, right? If you started it from basic and then where it culminates in graduating a qualification course, it was a little different, but the way they captured it, it was a little narrower. It's from arrival at, X -ray, at the X-ray program to uh, graduation, Who, or, or from from or completion of selection, being selected. So that was that was you know. We talked. Was it was it Ryan? Who were you talking to? Who said it? Because he was in whoever we were speaking with said they were an X-ray, and when they went through the X-ray program, they felt like selection was no problem after they had done the X-ray program. Like like they were ready for it. They were fit. Yeah, there was there was a high. Um, the guys I sent to selection had a high success rate, but you know. I had them for roughly a month, in some cases longer if they were like awaiting training or something. And what are you gonna do? I had guys who were in great shape, PT, land nav, PT, P land nav is PT, you know, and these yeah. guys were just fit, aerobically fit, they were strong, and they, hopefully by then, you know, they had a, a mental kind of toughness. So for I, the psychological guys who were the leadership toughness. challenges, you had the gig pit? 
the gig pit, <laughs> which, um, and we, for a while, we had the gong show, but it was eventually done away with, which was, we felt that we didn't want people to quit without thinking it through. So it was kind of an analog to the ring of the bell uh -huh. in the sense that if you're going to quit, you need to do it. It needs to be a deliberate decision, and you need to explain to your peers why you're doing it. Uh -huh. Rather than just disappearing like at Ranger School. Because when I was at Ranger School, I remember it was like, close your eyes. All right, no shame. Anybody wants to quit can quit now. And I look through the fingers and then be a couple Yeah, of right. And yeah, that kind of thing. But we wanted them to, we didn't want them to quit, right? So we wanted to make sure that they had thought about it. And that was the, the gong show. They, they would go up and they would explain to their peers why they were quitting and they would hit the thing and they would leave. Um, after I left, I, I don't know. All that stuff started before me. I continued it. Um, I was inherent, and then after I left, I, I don't know. I think um, one thing that got better, for sure, was the understanding of kind of training modalities and, and sports medicine, because they brought some guys in later mm -hmm. that had studied that, right? Right. I was, I, I was kind of brought up from the old school way, is this, you know, you're going to go PT, and, mm -hmm. you know, if you're, you're sore or whatever, suck it up. Right. right. You know, and, and there's there's obviously a little more science to it than that. Yeah. And I think it got better over time. I don't know. I, you know, I, well, I, I think I think a lot. I don't know about the military in general, but I think a lot of the special operations units are are seeing that. Yeah, for sure. Where there are, you know, the sports physicians, there are, you know, the, the uh, physiologists, people like that. Let's uh, hit up some uh, questions. Yeah, here for sure. From the viewers. Uh, Cypher, thank you. Rummy. Two questions. Why does the CIA make up artificial political factions such as the Northern Alliance and sell it to the public like it's organic? Um, let's just start with that one. So the Northern Alliance was the name that was ascribed to what was left of the resistance to, to the Taliban is really mm -hmm. what it was. And so from, you know, you know, the Afghan history at the end of the, the Soviet uh, war of aggression, for, for lack of a better word, uh, Afghanistan descended into to the sort of warlord chaos. And then Mullah Muharram and Omar came on the scene. He galvanized what became the Taliban, supported by Pakistan. And he pretty much took over three quarters, uh, four-fifths of the country. What was left was the Tajiks under uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud, mm -hmm. the Uzbeks under uh, Abdul Rashid Dostum, Ishmael Khan, who had a Tajik folks in uh, uh Herat, and, uh, and Mr. Mohammed Atta, who is uh, also uh, a Tajik, and some Hazara folks like Mr. Khalili and Mr. Mokak. That was it. And, and so they were collectively loosely affiliated. They were called the Northern Alliance. And they kind of cooperated, but like in a very diluted and loose way. So you had to call them something. They were not the Taliban. They were opposed to the Taliban, and they became the Northern Alliance. Yeah, I mean, all political factions are ultimately artificial, cobbled together by elites, right? I mean, in Syria, we we put together the Syrian Democratic Forces or Syrian Defense Forces, whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you got to do what you got to do, right? But, yeah, it may not be coherent, but you got to give them a name to kind of define them and distinguish them from, the, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, you know. The, and, and, and even though they're all warlords and they're all sort of grasping for their own power, you still want to create some sense of unity amongst them, like there's a common cause. You know, it, we want them to operate 
at least jointly for a while. You yeah. Know, who knows what's going to happen? Well, the, we know what's going to happen. The second that. part of the question, uh, should we have killed bin Laden and left? I mean, yes. I mean, ideally, if we could have found him, but, you know, we know how that went. I mean, it wasn't that easy. Mm -hmm. um, I, now, hindsight being 2020, we know where he was, and we sort of have reconstructed his exodus into Pakistan, but at the time, we didn't know that. I mean, we, I remember asking Afghans where he, where he was in northern Afghanistan. He wasn't anywhere near northern Afghanistan, as it turned out, but we didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. um, and then we got close to him in Tora Bora and that kind of phase in December of 01, but he slipped into Pakistan, and then he ended up in, you know, eventually ended up in Abbottabad, as we all know. So um, it's not, not easy, you know? It just isn't easy. That's all there is to it. And there's even the discussion, regardless of bin Laden, like our our mission there really, in, I don't think, had much to do with the Taliban. It was about AQ in the beginning. It's like, yeah. once we wiped out AQ, did we have any more business in Afghanistan? Yeah. You know, like our invasions of both Iraq and Afghanistan, even though they were different, you know, mm -hmm. you have the, the light touch and then you have the full conventional military invasion. Both the invasions were very successful. It was just sort of... Everything after. It, it was like, okay, well, now what do we do? And our decisions from that point forward. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a good point. I think it's all boils down to that old adage that was really designed for corporate America, but culture eats strategy for breakfast. I mean, you inherit... You're a victor, right? You're a conqueror, for lack of a better word. You're, military success, you're militarily successful. Now you've essentially deposed whoever the alpha was mm -hmm. in that, that system. Now you're the alpha. Now you got to control it. Right. And uh, I'm not, you know, Saddam was a horrible guy, for example, in Iraq. But he understood Iraq better than we did. Right. Right. And so he knew, you know, through brute force, and he was an evil man, um, how to keep the lid on things. And then we went in there. And I'll, I'll never forget this, because the first time I, I heard the Arab point of view, it's always weird I went to CGSC in Kuwait, weirdly, and uh, the Kuwaitis, who are our allies, they pulled, pulled me aside and said, you know, we despise Saddam, he invaded our country, but, um, you know, uh, when you remove him, then you make Iran strong. Right. And it's sort of that, that whole logic that I had never really thought, because mm -hmm. at the time we were so confident, we're going to knock him off, he's evil. The whole WMD thing, from my point of view, was how we sold the, the, the war to the UN and to the world. But, you know, I heard Tony Blair say it the other day in an interview a couple of days ago that we genuinely believe that Saddam was evil and he needed to be deposed because he was an evil person and he committed all these atrocities, and that was righteous, right? Right. When we talked about the invasion of Iraq in 03, it wasn't you need to find, I mean, the WMD was part of the thing, but it was, this is an evil guy and we're going to take him out. Right. And it's just, and we're going to do it. And that's how we viewed it. Uh, the WMD thing was, was part of it, but it was, uh, you know, um, it was how we, unfortunately, we didn't get the, the Security Council resolution that we wanted. And uh, that was kind of how we presented it as, as a means of justifying uh, what, we already thought was justified, at least from the military point of view. Anybody I had any dealings with, it was like, he's evil, commits atrocities, he needs to go. Right. Um, and it was long overdue. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, 
it, and it's it's challenging because he is evil and Tito is evil and we see what happened to Yugoslavia, yeah, you know, right. right? Like we see sort of these artificial countries and Afghanistan is the same way where it's deeply divided within and it's a, you know, a, a dictator or, or somebody, you know, some strong force that's like holding this group of people that want nothing to do with each other together and then you remove that person and then what happens? Yeah, I mean, from from the Gulf Arab point of view, many of my peers told me that he's simply a ballast, as evil as he is, he's a ballast against Iran. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, as bad as he is, he's not as bad as Iran. Right. And even we thought that for a while because we supported yeah. Iraq against Iran for quite a while. True, true, true. You're right, you're right. I think at the time, I'm just looking back and thinking of the zeitgeist, you know, it was like, it was like Saddam is evil and this is righteous. But I do remember at one point in, in 03 leading up to the invasion, I remember talking to my first start, I didn't think it was going to happen. Yeah. Because like the Brits were sort of wavering. Waffling, yeah. And the, even the SES guys were like, hey, we're not sure we're going to be here. And I remember I told the, uh, to talk, turned to Rob, I said, I don't think we're going to be here. He said, I don't think it's going to happen. I'm like, well, I don't want to sit out in the desert for three months waiting on, you know, the UN Security Council or whatever it was. I can't right. remember I said. And then sure enough, about a week later, it was execute, execute, execute. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, KT has a question. I, I don't know if this is some sort of a euth euphemism or something. Uh, when did you see the first music tent in Afghanistan? I think that was for Dostone. He, he had music tents? Uh, I didn't see any music tents. You mean like, uh, I, I, so I, I didn't see any music, period, <laughs> or hear any music, rather, period, uh, until I got to uh, after Mazar fell. Uh, in fact, the first women without burqas on I saw was the women's right movement, underground movement that Dostum, that came to meet with Dostum That's and Shepardon. Yeah, that was really weird because I hadn't seen any women over the age of like oh, 12 without a burqa on for like months. And then all of a sudden we're in, in uh, Shepardon and these women come in and this is a culture, this is interesting, like they come in. And Jer's like, watch this, man. So they come in. There's probably like 20, 30 of them came in. They, t they, they have the burqas off. They're in the room, and Dostum gives a speech. Like, you're free, and, you know, the Taliban oppressed you, but I promise you that you will be allowed to go to you receive an education, no barriers to advancement, all this kind of stuff, jobs, work, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they made, said some things, and then it was, there was like an older lady who was kind of the, the the alpha there and she was like okay and then they walked out and they left and we were like an oddity because it's like Dostum and these two like American dudes with AKs were just standing there quietly watching and uh, they leave and then he goes watch this and I looked out and they come out of the building they got the Burkas back on wow and the Taliban are long gone yeah and he goes you know why they do that he goes it's like wearing a fedora in 1948 that's just what you do here it's not it, it yeah, the Talibs enforced it, but half of them would do it's it. It's a right it's now. a cultural norm now. Yeah, it's normative. Yeah, exactly. That was yeah. It, that it's was weird. you know, you talk about uh Dostum and, and women and then you were earlier when you were talking uh how they talk you know, when you're saying how they talk shit on, on the radio to each other because they're all in the yeah. clear. It reminded me of that sto uh, story in Toby's book about when there was when Dostum heard that there was a female uh pilot. It was oh yeah, them, yeah, 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 and like, like starts rubbing that into their face that it's a woman that's bombing you guys. 
Yeah, that was that was cool. I actually met, I, I, I think it was her, I met her at the Horse Soldier uh, event a couple years ago. Um, anyway, uh, yes, the angel of death or something. <laughs> um, so apparently she was the navigator, or the I think she was the navigator of the FOCO and the AC-130, and she was on the net, and so Dosun could hear her, and he said, oh, man, I got I to, <laughs> I, I got to, I got to, like, use some, you know, whatever psyops here. So he, he grabbed the, according to JR, I think it was JR or Scott told me this, he grabbed the, 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 the Motorola and he put it up next to the embitter and he just keyed it and he goes, hey, Mola, whatever his name was, hey, Mola, uh, maybe it was Mola Fazel, I don't know. He's like, hey, just want to let you know, you curious to know who's killing you? Listen here. And he was just like, <laughs> and, um. And supposedly this went on for a while, and then he's like, you know, I don't, I'm not sure you're going to get into heaven. You get killed, you know, by the angel of death. It's going straight <laughs> to hell. Something like that. I don't know. And, you know, in the, the Muslim, uh, Afghan sensibilities, it it, it really uh, sunk home. Peter says, uh, awesome guest. Really looked forward to the interview. Thanks for the quality time every week. Team House, thanks, man. Uh, let's see, what else do we got in here? How embitters worked in Afghanistan back then? I mean, they worked pretty well, didn't they? Yeah, they were new. Uh, they worked, sat, FM. Uh, yeah, they, they were fine. I'm not a comma guy, but um, the problem was I didn't realize this because I wasn't. We were trained at the Q course at the time, mostly as uh, most of the comms training I received was, was OGT at the Robin Sage. We had an officer phase, but, uh, you know, quite honestly, it wasn't that great. And it was all about HF comms at the time, mm -hmm. the 137, stuff of that nature. Um, the SATCOM was like kind of this niche thing, but we weren't, I don't remember using it much. 104 we used, and then we get to Afghanistan, and 01, it's, it's the thing, and it's all about SATCOM. So I, I fear, and this is, I'm sure, a lot of comp, comma guys will argue the same, that you know, the, the as SATCOM kind of just sort of overshadowed HF, like, you know, the skills needed to build antennas and uh -huh. that kind of stuff, wave propagation, all that, that stuff you were taught is just eventually kind of kind of atrophies. But It's um, sort of like Morse code, right? I mean, it's such yeah, a they, rare Yeah, I remember when I heard now. they got rid of it. I was right. like, what? They got rid of Morse code, and one guy's like, it's first sign of the apocalypse, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, technology, you know, it's just, uh, you know, it is what it is. Justin, I, I got a couple more questions here. Could I ask you to stay a little bit after for the sure, bonus yeah, segment sure, to sure. talk about, I want to hear about Asymmetrical Warfare Group. Yeah, sure. Uh, Connor asks, could Justin talk about any partnership collaboration with third-party nations like Iran-Pakistan during the 2001 Afghan invasion, or was that all dealt with at a higher level? So I, I don't know about higher level. I'm sure there were some, I don't know diplomacy, international diplomacy, whatever you want to call it. There was Quds Force guys on the ground in northern Afghanistan, period. And they were, he had like, a, Dosum had an LNO who was from the RGC Quds Force, period. And uh, that guy kept his distance from us, but it makes sense, like, if you're Iran, you're going to have your guys, you know, yeah. with the Northern Alliance, right? Because you're not friends with the Taliban. Right. Right. Remember in 98, they almost went to blows when mm. eight diplomats were killed in, Mazar I think it was Mazar-e-Sharif. So, 
Yeah, but they're still our enemy, right? So right. they're just going to keep their distance. Um, yeah, I remember seeing the guy. They were there. Um, but the whole the shenanigans with Iran didn't emerge until later. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, that was out of my purview. Well, that was very much like, um, you know, Iran fighting ISIS. And, you know, certain people trying to say, oh, look, they're on our side. It's like, no, they're on their side. Like, <laughs> ISIS and them have very different, you know, ideals. Uh, yeah, no, a absolutely. I mean, they're 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 going to ebb and flow. Maybe they're they're a common enemy. They're going to collaborate for that purpose. But at the end of the day, they're diametrically opposed in terms yeah. of their uh, the theological kind of uh, positions, right? Yeah. Uh, last question here: Do you believe there is enough emphasis on language and cultural skills? Or are guys who speak Dari, Persian, Uzbek, Pashto, etc., at a premium? I don't know if he's talking about in regards to the CIA or special forces. Oh man, that's actually a great point. So that that you know, I glossed over that, or I just omitted that. So in the beginning, I said, "Hey, Jr. spoke Dari because he had been trained in Dari to be an Afghan guy back in the late '80s, middle late '80s." Um, Dave was a essentially a PhD guy in Central Asian studies, but the bulk of the military didn't train in those target languages, nor did, as I understand it, the interagency. So when 9-11 happened, we were, we were flat-footed, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't a priority. Afghanistan had been relegated to the dustbin. You know, it was, it, was, it was yesterday's news and we were focused on other things. So those language skills were critical. The problem I have with SF, just say, Army SF, I don't know about the Naval Special Warfare, but um, if you're going to train someone in a Cat 4 language, you need to spend more time doing it. Um, we try to do it, we got a pipeline, we got to get guys through. You do six months of modern standard Arabic or six months of Russian, and then you're, you're out to group. Now, I don't know about now, I'm sure they've, I knew they changed things over the years, but at the end of the day, Six months is like the bare minimum. Yeah. So I did modern standard Arabic in 2000, uh, in 99. And I did Dari years later, and I did the short, like, expedited course, which was like four and a half months in Roslyn, Virginia. And um, I actually got to use my Dari a little bit in Afghanistan, and so that was helpful. But that stuff atrophies pretty quickly unless you immerse. And so... All the guys I've seen that are really good um, are guys that are able to kind of immerse. But the problem is that th they train you to do the DLPT, which is sort of the king's English version of things. Right. You read newspaper articles. You're dealing with, you know, the upper middle class kind of Arabs, right? Right. Um, but the guys in Iraq on the ODAs, what they would the way they approached it was they would focus on vocab and less on grammar and they would crash on vocab. So when they're on the range, the, at minimum, they have the vocabulary. Cause I always thought that was the hardest part of Arabic was the vocabulary versus the grammar, just remembering the words. Cause there's, there's very few uh, analogs, right? You know, and so you got to remember the vocabulary or you're, you're out of Schlitz. So I just don't think we spent enough time. I, I don't know if we could spend more time, but you look at defense attaches and all that, they spend 18 months going to Arabic school. Maybe if we focused on a couple guys, these guys have the, the, the skills and the, because not everybody, you know, it varies. Guys with the really high aptitude, 
you kind of earmark them and send them to modern standard Arabic or these harder languages, and they come and they embed on the teams. And they almost invariably need to be warrants or NCOs because officers aren't on teams long enough. Right. You know? I mean, and, and it's challenging because, I mean, there are, like, what, like 6,000, 7,000 languages in the world. There are almost 200 countries. It takes a long time to build those You know, and, and, you know, the, and, and what, you know, you train somebody in some language that, you know, you, we can't, pre- you know, predict the wars of the future. And so, you know, you train somebody in language and they just sit around and do nothing in the military to, you know, have no benefit having this obscure language that yeah, suddenly, exactly. you know, becomes right, right. critical. Relevant. You know, yeah. And, yeah. You know, you know, and that's where, like, a lot of the civilians come in and also a lot of the English-speaking indigenous people yeah. where, you know, you try to recruit those people so as much as we'll, you can. Uh, we'll talk about ASW in a minute, but... Um, you had a you had a stint there after SWIC, and then you uh, was telling where you were we were talking about a little bit earlier that you had a sort of like oversight position um, on the intel- army intelligence community. Oh yeah, while. so I, I would well, I was at the Pentagon, so it was the Office of Secretary of Defense, and I was in a, an intel oversight job where essentially I oversaw uh, did some intel oversight for SOCOM. And most of that was focused on briefing the uh, intel, the staff committees at the, on the Hill. So mainly the, the congressional staff committees, but uh, also the Senate, Senate, you know, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So um, I did that, but it was a policy job. So I went, you know, that was after I was a squadron commander and I went to uh, War College and then I, then I did that job. And so that was interesting. It was, um, but you're... The Pentagon, the thing that people don't realize until you work there for a while, if you're an OSD, there's fewer green suitors than there are civilians. So as a green suitor, you're sort of, in OSD at least, I felt like you're kind of summer help. You're coming in for a year or two, and then you're gone. Mm-hmm. So regardless of whether these guys are, 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 are former military or not, they're sort of like the, they're institutionalized, and you're just coming in for a year or two, and then you're gone. Whereas on the joint staff, it's different because that's predominantly military guys. You're, you're coming in, a boss is in for a year or two, and then they're gone. And then, so it kind of creates a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think it's particularly interesting. A lot of it I can't talk about it because it was, you know, sort of... sort of Spooky. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, but yeah, it was, but it's policy, right? So you're, you're editing memos, getting your boss to, to endorse memos. You're coordinating with other offices and arguing and fighting them over um, uh, semantics <laughs> and, and who's going to be in charge of what. The thing about the Pentagon that's interesting is the study in um, internecine competition between offices, right? So they're each vying for a bigger piece of the pie. And he who, in my view, this is my, opinion, this is my personal opinion, I'm here in my personal capacity, um, it, it's he who can sort of subsume more wins, right? Right. Now <laughs> so, The board cube. Yeah. yeah. Now, the flip side of that also, because especially since the officer, as you move up, the officer uh, core is very competitive. It's not just the most wins, but it's the least amount of losses, right? So yeah. it, how, how, I mean, do people, not necessarily when there is an ongoing project, when a project, like when a project looks like it might be iffy and people want to keep a distance from it, then if it's successful and people want to take the credit, like, do you have to fight off like the flocks 
when when something actually works that people didn't think you know they didn't want their name on it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like a, a defeat has is an orphan, but success has a thousand fathers. Right, kind of thing. right. Um, you mean at the like policy level? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. But for me, it was uh, yeah, probably. Uh, but for me, it was more your you're a military guy doing oversight, essentially checking the homework uh -huh. of people that you used to work with. Uh -huh. So you're like the high school hall monitor. I, right? I was going to ask yeah, you, you know, if you felt like a like vice that, principal. And you're a bit of like a nerd. And, yeah. And, and, and I mean, quite frankly, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you got it. There's a good reason we have oversight. It came out of a lot of bad things that happened and Congress, you know, Congress does a lot of good stuff. A lot of people, uh, the politicians, but you know, the, there's various policies and, and, well, statutory law that's in place now for good reason because bad things happen. So that's where oversight is. But um, that was always difficult for me because they're your people, right? Right. And maybe that's why, you know, I, you know it, it was tough that, that you're checking their homework and, and digging into them and making them jump through hoops. And, you know, there's there's going to naturally be some national. <laughs> sure. There, right? You remember, you don't, where'd you come from, man? You know, this kind of thing. It's funny because I was going to ask you if it felt like being the vice principal, but you saying hall monitor makes a lot more sense because they're your peers. They're people. Who, I'm speaking of myself. Right. Like, like, right. And you got to remember, too, you know, I'm not um, I was brought in that job like kind of sight unseen. I was I was kind of a, you know, outlier. And uh, all of a sudden I'm like, you know telling these people that, that are very accomplished people like, hey, you know, this is not, you need to do differently and, and you need to do this different or you need to correct this thing and, and do that. And then they, they kind of, you know, very understandably get upset with it. But there, it's all there for good reasons. Part of, it's kind of part of that whole checks and balances system. How do you, how do you maintain your objectivity as a warfighter yourself, as somebody who had been in conflict, you know, when if like you get why they're doing something, even if it's like out in the gray, but it's like, it does, like it doesn't meet the standards. It doesn't meet the laws. Like, how do you maintain, how do you maintain, did you just kind of have to like set yourself to go? These are the laws. This is, these are the policies. No, it's, it's more, uh, you know, in my view, it's just more uh, interpersonal relations, you know, like tweaking things. Like, yeah. Hey, you know, you know, it was more a, a a function of being able to get along with people without about being overly officious. Like you, sometimes you had to be, you know, lay down the law. I guess. I mean, right. be strident about things. But at the end of the day, it was sort of like, hey, I'm going to red ink your paper, and then next week when you return the street submit paper, it needs to have those corrections reflected. You got it. Got it. You know? Right. But if you didn't red ink it, they would have sent up the freaking grammatically incorrect version and got yeah. away with it, right? And right. It's just, it's just right. like that, right? In a sense, yeah. you're helping them out, really. Right. But sometimes, I mean, some people... But they don't see it that way. Well, do you? Some people Right. Are, right. I mean, and you're not, you know... It was like I was, uh, I did a murder... I did a 15-6 in parallel with the, the Bellamby murder. And I had to come back to Camp Brown as the guy had been there for a year and then like a week later I'm back as the I the, the deputy investigating officer checking you know now I'm that guy 
and then you know, especially in soft, it's like everybody was cool with me at the you know little dining facility. And then they said, "What are you back here for, sir? You were here for a year. What are you back here? I'm on the I/O for this." And they're like, "Oh, what was man. this murder? <laughs> Do you remember in uh, 2012, uh, an American sergeant shot 16 Afghans and uh, oh and Jesus, yeah, 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 yeah. So I got I got uh, well I got picked to be the deputy I/O for that. The General Waddell, his breeder Waddell at the time, who later became Deputy National Security Advisor, he was... Uh, I knew that guy's PL, actually. Oh, you did? Him. Well, I've, I've, I've spoken with him, yeah. Yeah, he's a, he's a nice guy. Anyway, he, he was a Rhodes Scholar, all this kind of stuff. He uh, he was the IO, and I was the SF guy that was... Because it was, it was an infantry guy from Fort Lewis who was attached to SF. And anyway, it's a long story, but I got back to the States after 12 months in Afghanistan, and then within a week... I got asked to come back, asked to come back to do <laughs> the thing, and I agreed. And then, boom, I went back, went down to Kandahar, and I did that investigation. And uh, that was the thing where the dining facility, what, oh, you were just here. What are you back for, sir? Oh, the I.O. thing. They're like, hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm, sitting, I'm sitting by myself at the table, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's understandable, right. I guess. But, um, but yeah, that, that one was pretty bad. I mean, that was a, that was a tough Thing and you know we had to depose all these people and I had a lot of respect for the not just the lawyers but the um, the legal assistants because they had to go in and transcribe every audio interview and transcribe it into writing mm. and that's just tedious work and there was like seventy some people we interviewed I remember that anyway so I did that and that was that was you know that was tough uh, but kind of similar in the sense that you're um, you're this guy you know questioning. Mm -hmm. Questioning authority, questioning people, and but the way it's set up is you aren't you don't answer to them, right? So they. I remember one time I went down to Tampa and man, I got a ration <laughs> from like old guys like General Kearney. I think went off on me. I mean, well, he wasn't going off on me. He was just going off on like frust. They're just frustrated, right? Right. Like that we were, in our view, doing our job, but right. in their view, we were just nerds that were. Uh, uh, just being, uh, you know, officious or whatever. Eventually, you did get out of purgatory, made colonel. Can you talk? Can you talk? I mean, as far as you're able to talk to us about, you know, where you are now, what your job entails. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really uh, a military advisor to the U.S. ambassador to the UN, which is very analogous to being a defense attaché uh, in a CONUS-based assignment. So I'm in New York City at Midtown Manhattan. So I work with the various um, uh, member states, and every, not all member states, but a lot of them have military advisors, they're colonels or generals, uh, and they might have a small staff, and um, they represent their country's equities at the UN. So mm -hmm. a lot of countries, not the US, but a lot of countries are big contributors, like Bangladesh and Nepal and Ethiopia, or formerly Ethiopia, but countries like that. And so, you know, that's what they do. Other than internal to the country, they do peacekeeping, and so they're out deployed in you know Mali or, or Democratic Republic of Congo. I was just in DRC, uh, Eastern DRC, a couple of months ago, and so you go out. I go out and I inspect some of these things, and then we try to correct problems and advise the ambassador on peacekeeping. But the UN is sort of, understandably, the Security Council is the tier one. And then peacekeeping sort of is like DOS running in the background. It's mm -hmm. just standard kind of like we got 80 plus thousand people deployed. 
they're in all these tough countries doing, you know, what they're doing. Thankless and, jobs. And it's really. kind of a thankless yeah. job. But honestly, in my view, for some of these countries that are uh, less, uh, let's just say, have less resources than we do, for them, it's also a, a, a way of funding their military. Right? Uh -huh. so it gets so their they, soldiers paid. Their soldiers, they get reimbursed for stuff. So from their point of view, it's a, it's a, it's a transaction, right? So they go and they do this, and they're able to fund their military, and it, it works for them, and it works for the UN. And, um, and the Western countries, to varying degrees, do peacekeeping. Um, as you probably know, uh, the U.S., uh, we do a little bit, but mostly we support, we do capacity building, which is very important. Um, and, uh, and, and so that's our role. But, you know, we're out doing a lot of other things around the world, so we let other countries do that, and it, it seems to work out. It's far from perfect, but, um, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's what I do, and, and um, you know, and it's, it's, it's an interesting job. It's uh, definitely different than anything I've ever done before. Are, uh, are things a little bit tense over there at the U.N. with everything going on in the world right now? Yeah, well, I mean... The, the Ukraine thing is, you know, front and center, as you all know, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon, and, and nor should it. I mean, it's, it's, um, it is what it is. I'll say, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of countries, particularly in Africa, will complain. They'll be like, well, you know, it's horrible what's going on in Ukraine, but, you know, there's equivalent right. things going on all the time where we are, and you guys don't seem to care. That, right. that, that's like one of the, the constant refrains you hear. Interesting. And I've been out to DRC, and man, Eastern DRC is rough. I mean, it's beautiful, like the terrain mm -hmm. and the, the the environment. The weather is actually very nice because it's high altitude but tropical. Um, but man, there's some bad stuff going on yeah. there. Um, and so, I found I find that piece fascinating. I like going out to those kind of places. I've always liked the developing world. I just find it interesting to go out and see that kind of stuff and fly around in my 17s and you know into the jungle and all that kind of stuff you know um but you know i'm an old guy now and um my days of being a team leader are long long <laughs> gone right so this is the closest thing i can get you know, you've, go you've had a uh, you've had an amazing career and now you're, you're less than a year away from retirement uh do you have any any inkling any plans of what the future holds for you um, yeah, I mean, for me, I'm, I'm pretty anchored to the area here. Uh, my family's from the area. Um, I, but, you know, the gravitational pull for guys like us that, with military backgrounds is sort of the beltway, right? Um, but I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'll probably end up in, uh, you know, one of the financial institutions here. There's a bit of a... You a, come a, come down here on the team house and work with <laughs> us every so <laughs> often. We'll, we'll have you. Come on. <laughs> You think that J.P. Morgan gives you Lefroy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't. I'm scared, man, because I don't know anything about that stuff. But there's a network of vets yeah. in New York. Yeah, it, yeah it's yeah, not yeah. big, but it's it's strong, mm -hmm. and so yeah. uh, it's it's something I'm going to leverage. Yeah, those, those organizations. A lot of those organizations have like very strong uh, veteran hiring programs. Yeah, Bank of America, particularly for yeah. officers. Right, Jack? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't know yet. I, I, I'm looking at a couple options. I, I'm a member of the American Legion over the New York Athletic Club, which is great. So there's Oh, at NIAC? I didn't know there was an American Legion chapter yeah, there. Yeah, the NIAC sort of, yeah, it, the American Legion is under the NIAC. And there's, there's yeah, there's... I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a member of the one in Hoboken. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. okay. I haven't been to that one. Is that... Uh, it's very nice. They just redid it. Um, 
really nice place. The the top four of it is like uh, housing for homeless veterans. Oh, awesome. yeah, they do a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I, I think we we're pretty sm- relatively well. COVID really was tough, right? Yeah. So the core group of people that come out, but uh, but it's great and they're pretty tight. And uh, actually, my old uh, group commander from AWG has uh, brought me in. Oh, cool! So that's how I, I got pulled in, and he's from Staten Island, so it's good. Let's uh, we're going to cover this in the bonus segment. So for our Patreon subscribers, uh, you'll well, see this link is down in the description. And if you're not, hey, join us. You know, support our booze habit, pay our rent. Uh, you know, help us out, help a brother out. Uh, you know, you can get in cheap, ground floor. Um, but tell us a little bit about Asymmetric Warfare Group, because we'll talk about this yeah. more in the bonus segment. So uh, Asymmetric Warfare Group uh, was uh, inactivated in the past year, uh, unfortunately. It was a great experiment in kind of a, like a unicorn sort of unit. Um, I came in in uh, 2013. Uh, I was not a former unit member. I was brought in as to be the three. So uh, Colonel Pat Mahaney, who the, the, the American Legion, he was a group commander. He was looking for some fresh blood, so to speak. So he brought me in from outside. I became the three, and then I went over to one of the squadron battalions. Um, it was an exigent initially of the uh, Iraq and Afghan wars, mainly Iraq and then Afghanistan. When I showed up, it was had a strong presence in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We had hubs in Baghdad. Well, that one was uh, actually reduced when I got there. I'm sorry. Was, right, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll hit this up in the bonus yeah. segment. It, but, it, it's, but just an overview. It was started pretty early, right? Yeah, well, like 04, 05. The first time I heard about it was in oh, late 04. Uh, they started uh, recruiting people. I didn't go. I, I thought about it, but I didn't go. Um, and uh, a couple guys I knew went. And and um, but they were, you know, the two man teams would go out, and they would they were operational advisory teams, and they would advise units on how to overcome asymmetric threats and stuff like that. It, it was a product of the whole evolution of IED. It was stuff, a lot of know. guys from like tier one. It was uh, from tier one units. It was it was a very interesting experiment, so and we'll, we'll get into successful. that. In, in two seconds yeah. on the bonus segment. Here, give me your glass. I'll fill you up there. Next week, next Friday, we're going to have a uh, former CIA paramilitary operations officer on. Uh, Kim Kipling is his uh, pen name, talking about another legendary paramilitary officer, Dutch. Um, so we'll have him on the yeah. show next week. Yep. And um, that's it. Until next time, we'll see you guys then. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks, everybody. We appreciate it. Thank you for Thanks. having me. And hey, check out, check out Toby's book. Yeah, definitely. It, the the full Justin's full story is in there, and I mean, Toby obviously interviewed all the other OGA guys who are out there, so it, it's a really well done book. So we'll see you guys next time. Take care. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.